You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. This is an English public school. This is where Britain raised its empire builders of yesterday and still trains its leaders of tomorrow. This is the unchanging English public school. This is where you still learn to play the game. The angles of the one equal the angles of the other. Understand, buddy? Yes, sir. Good. Far from home, far from your family, you learn what to expect from life. Just remember that life here is a matter of give and take. We are your new family, and you must expect the rough and tumble that goes with any family life. In this world, you have to watch out for yourself and obey the rules, as in the world outside. But some people are born to break the rules. <laughs> you three have become a danger to the morale of the whole house, and we've decided to beat you for it. I serve the nation. You haven't the slightest idea what it means, have you? You mean that bit of wool on your tit? freedom and excitement, its visions and its dreams, this is the world of youth, a world of fantasy that sometimes turns to strange violence. Look at me. I'll kill you. You won't forget them. Christine Noonan as the girl. Malcolm McDowell as Mick the rebel. Richard Warwick. And David Wood as his friends who share a secret loyalty. Three young people who reject a world that the old have made and decide to take things into their own hands. If may shock you, it will surely surprise you. It's a film that will make you take sides. Which side will you be on? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Sam Deegan. I'm so excited to talk about Lindsay Anderson. Also back in the booth is Mr. Jonathan Owen. Hello, me too. (laughs) In this episode, we are going to be looking at three films by Lindsay Anderson that all star Malcolm McDowell as Michael McTravis. Some people, including me, call them the McTravis trilogy, but they are as different from a trilogy as, say, the Evil Dead films. In If, Mick is the leader of a student revolution. In Oh Lucky Man, he's a coffee salesman. And in Britannia Hospital, he's an investigative reporter. We'll be talking about how Mick changes through the three films along with their possible connections and contradictions. 
if you can believe it, we will be spoiling the hell out of these movies. Let's try to stay on topic with one film after another to that end. Jonathan, when was the first time you saw If, and what did you think? I first saw it on TV, uh, I think on BBC Two in uh, late 1994. I remember it was shown around Christmas time, and I was about 17 at the time, and uh, I had heard about the film before, and I think I was quite interested in it because... As you may know, um, Clockwork Orange was actually banned still in the UK at that time. And so I think anything that was connected in some way to Clockwork Orange, which I hadn't seen yet, was very exciting. So I think the presence of Malcolm McDowell and the uh, the fact that it, it was meant to be a little bit violent, I think, intrigued me. But I'm ashamed to say that the first time I saw it, I didn't really sort of stay with it. It didn't really click with me the first time. It just felt a little bit episodic and... I think I didn't even finish it the first time. I think I kind of taped it and then said to myself, well, I'll come back to it. And then I did come back to it a few years later when I was in my early 20s. And this was about 2003. And I saw it at the cinema when it was re-released. And then it, it completely clicked with me and I just fell in love with it. And I just loved the sort of rebellious style of it. I think it was, you know, as for many people, it's probably a, quite a cathartic experience for anybody who didn't really enjoy school too much. It was also, you know, the style that I loved. I loved the use of music, you know, that very unique, striking use of the Miss Aluba, I think was very impressive for me. To this day, it really remains, I think, a favourite film of mine, along with Oh Lucky Man. And uh, I just think they represent a kind of cinema that Britain doesn't really do very well. I think, to me, they are the, the epitome of a certain kind of auteur cinema that Britain doesn't really uh, have a lot of, I think, or doesn't have enough of. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're very special films to me. How about you, Sam? I saw it for the first time sometime like late in college because, and I know I've told stories like this on the projection booth before, but when Netflix first became a thing and you could get discs and there was no streaming service, I just had this like giant queue of probably like 500 movies that were all things that I had heard I should see, but most of them I didn't know anything about. I remember running If because Malcolm McDowell was in it and because Clockwork Orange is one of the first movies that I was obsessed with when I was like 12 or 13, like way too young probably to be watching it. And so I thought like, okay, this is probably going to be some sort of like boring British school drama, but Malcolm is in it. So I'll give it a chance. And like my mind was blown and much like Jonathan, it's definitely one of my favorite films. And I think it's just absolutely perfect. And it really made me fall in love with Lindsay Anderson. And listening to Malcolm McDowell talk about it later on, like, I don't think I heard any of these interviews or commentaries until probably like five or six years ago. He gives these great interviews where he just talks about how impactful the film was for him. And like, it just how much he loves Lindsay Anderson. And I find them the whole trilogy, but especially if I find it weirdly moving in an emotional way that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I have gotten a lot of shit about what stuff I cover on the show and what stuff I don't. And 
I don't think anybody has noticed, but there's a huge glaring gap when it comes to British dramas. I've never really talked too much about British dramas. I've talked about some British comedies, your Monty Python, those kind of things, some older British films. But when it comes to like stuff that was coming out of the British New Wave, I've never gone anywhere near it because I don't know jack shit about it. And I was very scared of talking about Lindsay Anderson and about these films because these are all brand new to me. For whatever reason, I had never seen any of these movies. I had just stayed away from them or they just never crossed my threshold. So I saw If for the first time a few weeks ago in preparation for this show. And Whoa. then I have dived in and just been reading a whole bo- a lot about it, been watching documentaries about it and about Anderson. Uh, there's a great, it's a filmed stage performance of Malcolm McDowell telling stories about working with Lindsay Anderson. Highly recommended. There's just so many good things around it. So I feel like I'm more familiar with these films, but I'm still a little scared to talk about them because Anderson as a person feels like if he were here, he would probably be smacking me upside the head with a very large binder right now. <laughs> he just seems like you afterwards. Yeah, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> he just seems like such a cantankerous guy. And I love that he comes out of much like, you know, some of the, the filmmakers I've talked about from the French new wave and, and, and uh, Italian neo, neo realismo. He's coming out of film criticism And he also has this huge body of work when it comes to the theater. So, like, when it comes to the movies that he made, he didn't make a ton of movies, but he definitely knew his shit and knew how to get around a camera. And then If presents all of these interesting things as far as, like, the switching of the formats, going from color and black and white. And you guys know me. I'm just like, okay, what does that mean? I'm just, like, taking all these notes, like, okay, we've gone to color now. What does this mean? And then at the end of the day, I'm like, I don't think it means anything. There's no coding that I can possibly get out of this. I don't even know when this was. Maybe, like, a year ago, we did, the three of us did an episode on Jacques Rivette's La Morfou. And I feel like a lot of the conversation or a lot of the like broader points we talked about with Rivette also kind of apply to Lindsay Anderson. And to me, he's the only sort of English equivalent to somebody like Rivette who had that background as a journalist, has like the sassiest personality ever and (laughs) just would decimate people, but in maybe a more loving and less insane way than Jacques Rivette. And that black and white switch, I also have tried to find a reason for it. And I think he just was experimenting. There are a few different accounts. And from what I've read and heard about it, I don't think everybody agrees with the reason for it. I mean, I I think one story that I've heard repeated a few times is that uh, I think it began with the filming of one of the chapel sequences. And I think that there was basically a problem with lighting it in color. They just couldn't film it in color effectively. And so I think Anderson, or maybe also in collaboration with the cinematographer, just made that decision there and then to, to shoot some of it in black and white. And then I think from that point on, I think he basically embraced that as a kind of stylistic choice. So I think it was kind of like half something that was, you know, initially uh, produced by necessity. And then I think half a kind of a deliberate device. And as from what I can 
see, I think that Anderson didn't intend there to be a kind of specific reason in each case. You know, why is this sequence black and white? Why is it in color? I think it was more just to create a kind of distancing effect. And I think he was really, um, he was really into kind of Brechtian ideas. So I think it's very much just a kind of general kind of Brechtian distancing device rather than being sort of specifically meant to indicate, you know, is this fantasy? Is this real? Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? I think it's kind of just really meant to, I think, just keep you aware that you're watching a film. And uh, I think there are some really striking effects too that he produces with that. I think one of the scenes that, I mean, really struck me when I saw it in 2003 was the, the fencing sequence. And there's that great moment where, I think it's Malcolm McDowell. He just bursts bursts through the door with the uh, the sword, and it changes to color at that moment. So I think it, it's also you know one of those devices that works well for these really striking visual effects like that. It reminded me also of the way that he uses those really strange cuts in Oh Lucky Man, where it's almost like and, and this is really hard to describe if you haven't seen the film, but the way that a director would often or sometimes end a scene where it kind of like cuts to black before switching to the next scene. Lindsay does that a bunch in Oh Lucky Man, but it comes at totally random times and it is super Brechtian. And I I think that's maybe what, like if I had to pick one thing that I especially love about him as a director, I think he's probably the one who manages to translate Brechtian theatrical theory to film better than anyone else. There are times that those cuts to black in Oh Lucky Man, and I know that I'm jumping ahead and we'll get there, but it does have a purpose. It reminds me of punctuation. And then yes. I think about the title of If, which is very deliberate in the four dots after If. It's not an ellipsis. It is four dots afterwards. And I always think, is that supposed to be the four crusaders? But then there's the fifth crusader. So it doesn't line up that way. So I'm just like, ah, I wish it was five dots. Then it would make more sense. And of course, different from the Kipling poem, which I think is a dash. And I think that was Lindsay Anderson's very deliberate idea to use those four dots so uh yeah there, there possibly is a, a significance but yes i've never worked that out but the title i think comes up at the end as well doesn't it and i think the same thing happens with britannia hospital you get that kind of image of the brain sorry i'm jumping ahead a little uh but i think uh, that seemed to be a, a technique that he liked to bring the title up again after the final image well not only is this lindsay anderson and Malcolm McDowell that we have as a constant. We also have David Sherwin as a constant through this whole thing, too. He is the screenwriter, co-screenwriter of If. Uh, the original script was by him and a schoolmate, John Howlett. And then he would go on to work with Lindsay Anderson on Oh, Lucky Man and on Britannia Hospital. So it's like these three pieces. It's not just this two-legged device that we have. It's a, He's the third leg of the stool. And so he is bringing this stuff to bear as well. And he is a interesting dude. I, I read a lot of his autobiography, um, Going Mad in Hollywood. And man, he is super neurotic. <laughs> and just so many 
issues in his life that were going on at the same time as these movies were getting made. I'm amazed he got any work done at all. He just has all of these like romance problems and huge rows with his wife and girlfriend and all this cheating and having affairs with secretaries and just all of this shit going on. And yet he manages to make these screenplays and make them to Lindsay Anderson's specifications. Because like I said, he seems like he is very specific. He knows what he wants and he uses these two terms and these terms just kept coming up through everything that I was reading mini and epic. And there were many is just like, it's silly. Don't put that in there. It's just, you know, we need to have this thing be epic. And epic was like the thing that he was going for. And it wasn't just running time, even though Old Lucky Man is like three hours long. It just, it wasn't just, you know, like big set pieces because some of these smaller things that are happening, especially in If, these are epic to Lindsay. And they're definitely epic to Sherwin. He lived a lot of this stuff as well as John. And I don't think it's any coincidence that one of the characters' name is Johnny. And then for a while, there was just the other character who was like kind of the mix slash Wallace character. And eventually they broke him into two pieces, which I think really works well. And so again, it kind of fits back to those three legs of the stool where we have now, you know, these three characters who are taking on the world rather than just the, the two characters and just their ins and outs. And it, it helps balance the film a lot more by having, well, there's essentially one protagonist, but it's broken into three pieces with these three guys. I'm not surprised that you're, you either are or were nervous to talk about them because they're really hard to discuss for people who haven't seen them because so much insanity happens, especially in Oh Lucky Man and Britannia Hospital. Like, not that If isn't insane, but out of the three, If you can kind of reduce down to a sentence plot description, Maybe with, you know, a semicolon and an additional sentence, but like the other two. (laughs) We go with punctuation again. Yes, lots of punctuation. It's so hard to describe what it is that he does in his films, especially this trilogy, without somebody experiencing it for themselves, which I think to me is the mark of a great director or at least an exciting director who's pursuing a really unique vision. And I think if is different in the sense that I think the way it starts is almost quite realistic, isn't it, really? And it, I think, wrong-foots you in certain ways because, you know, you get this, I think, quite grounded account of, you know, the public school life and, you know, you get certain characters who you seem to follow initially and it's almost like it starts out as a different kind of film and then I think it kind of gradually builds the sort of fantastical or the dreamlike elements. Whereas I think, oh, lucky man, I think from the beginning, you're already on a sort of slightly heightened plane of reality. And I think Britannia Hospital too. So I think that's true that I think if somehow is the access point really as the first of the three. I find it very interesting that this was made in 1968. Folks who have listened to the show know that I drone on about 1968 all the time. And then we did the best year. So many films from 1969 over the course of 2020, this kind of bridges those, both of them, because it was made in 68, and then, what, it played in Cannes, and was that April of 69? I think it won Cannes, so it kind of bridges both of those, and this is actually being made 
while the strikes are happening in Paris. So this is right there, kind of like presaging a lot of stuff. And it is no coincidence to me that as you look around the sets of If, you are seeing so many revolutionary images you're you know the the only thing that i think was missing is the black panthers but there's like mao and there's scenes from vietnam and there's just like so many different things happening you can kind of use the sets as almost like a commentary upon the action that is happening in the sets took me a while to realize that the, there's a photo of a man in a cap, which is quite prominent among the collage images, and it's actually Lenin. So, uh, And I think it makes a point of showing that when in the scene when Mick is firing the, the little darts from the gun at various pictures, I think you see it behind him. And uh, it, it's uh, yeah, like a younger Lenin, I think. Those collages too are really interesting because I think not only the, the what the pictures are of, but I think just that idea of collage to me is very much part of that 60s sort of youthful aesthetic really and uh, it reminds me very much of the playwright Joe Orton who I think Anderson did direct some plays by a bit later and uh, Orton was kind of a, a very iconic figure of the 60s and he actually decorated his own apartment his own flat in that way with all these kind of collages of different images just culled from books and magazines and to me that in itself I think speaks really to that sensibility of that era really what is so striking to me about a lot of that context is it's one of those films that remains kind of like relevant or it hasn't aged the same way that maybe Britannia Hospital has because even if you don't really know any of that like 1968 revolutionary context or you go into the film and you have no idea that Lindsay Anderson is this like leftist political figure. There's still so much about it that resonates. Like watching it right now, it feels weirdly very topical. But the first time I saw it, it made me think of something like Columbine, like like a school shooting, basically. And so I think it has all of these different possible readings that Yes, of course, it's a 1968 film and does date itself in a really strong way. But it's like it's almost like that doesn't matter if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, re I really was keen to ask about that, about the ending, because I think even when I saw it in 2003, I guess this is after Columbine. But I think even in 2003, I think school shootings were not as regular as they are now, sadly. And um I guess in 1968, that, I mean, then as now, really, I guess, would not have been something that was happening in the UK. And also, this is 68, so it's really just before the IRA bombings really start, like in, in, in on the mainland in, in, in England. And so I guess, you know, you, at that point, you could still relegate this to fantasy. You could still say this is operating as a metaphor and that it's not something to be taken literally. But as you say, I mean, now it has a completely different resonance i think um it's interesting because i was re-watching um heathers recently which was made i guess 20 years after this and it's interesting that i mean i, I believe that heathers um had trouble in terms of getting the the original ending uh the intended ending produced which was that the, the school would be blown up and it's interesting that if is made a lot earlier and that doesn't cop out that goes really for the you know the violent confrontational ending but i guess you know the context may be 
dictate that I mean now or I guess since you know the time that if was made if you're making a film like that you you know you can't really <laughs> end it like this I guess that late 60s it was just about you know something that you could say well you know it's not really literal it's not really something that we're meant to you know see as an actual possibility but yeah it, it looks very different now I think randomly a couple of days ago, I watched this Japanese movie called Panic High School, or I think one of the alternate titles is like Panic in High School. And it's, I want to say it's from exactly 10 years later in 78. And it has a similar plot about this, this high school student who basically gets a hold of a gun from a gun store, which like it, it's a total fantasy in a similar way because, like, you can't just stroll into a gun store in Japan. Not like America, goddammit. No, we, we need our guns and our freedom. It has so many parallels that I didn't expect. And it's interesting you bring up that sort of, like, dividing point sometime in the 80s where it's like, okay, this is too real. We can't really show things like this in films. And so to watch... If from 68 and Panic High School from 78 and have them both go super over the top with the the like teenage violence, basically, even though in this film, they definitely look like they're in their early 20s. It's interesting to think about ways in which that has changed and ways in which it's taken on a different context. I mean, I think with all of the kind of rioting that we've had this year and sort of like people in various cities across America, like destroying police stations and things. There was a period where it would be really difficult to show and talk about if because of the school shooting connection. But I think now it's sort of come full circle in a weird way to maybe be more politically applicable again, because of those sort of like fantasies of revolution. When they came out with those guns at the end, because there's a few scenes of, of violence in the film. I mean, the first one that I recall is the violence with Mick and the girl. And <laughs> the wrestling fantasy. <laughs> yes. Well, and the slap in the face and then the wrestling and the music and the tiger sounds and all this. And I feel so bad that Christine Noonan <laughs> has. <laughs> I feel so bad that Christine Noonan has no name, that she is literally the girl. There's that violence. There's the violence against Mick, Johnny and Wallace with the, uh, the caning scene. And then there's the violence of the. I guess like the war maneuvers that this school is doing. It just seems so out of the blue that they're doing this. And then the big violence at the end. And I was just like, I was kind of surprised by the big violence at the end. Like when they found all the guns as they're cleaning out underneath this stage, I was like, okay, yeah, that could be bad. And then when, you know, so there is a plus B, you know, there a, the guns plus B, the violence that had been enacted upon them. But then C just felt like it was really big. Like, wow, they are killing everyone in this school. (laughs) This is really wild. I did not expect them to go this all out. Like, I had heard If is a movie about a school shooting. And that was about all I knew coming into this. So I was like, all right, yeah. And then that it happens right at the end and it's just so sudden. It was a little shocking to me. And I was kind of questioning, is this earned? And it might be because I've seen it so many times now, but to me, the ending feels weirdly triumphant. 
with like a touch of I don't want to say a touch of comedy, but like you can feel that it's satire and that not everyone might feel that way. That might just be because I'm a huge Lindsay Anderson fan and I've seen a bunch of his films. And so I sort of know what he's going for. And so I don't know if somebody who saw it for the first time would say like, oh, yes, that that felt like triumphant, but also satirical. But I do think that that super over the top ending is what makes it feel fundamentally different from like an actual school shooting film. Yes, I think there is a level of farce almost, isn't there, in the way that it's portrayed? I mean, I'm thinking of that moment with the uh, the elderly, very respectable looking lady who's just got that uh, machine gun and is yelling. In fact, not not even yelling, but just saying "bastards, bastards." And I think, yeah, I I do get that as well. That I think there is meant to be something satirical more than realistic. And I think also it's fairly bloodless too, isn't it? Really, I mean, even when the headmaster gets shot, it's just this very neat little bullet hole. It spares you the kind of graphic detail. People have have objected to the way that, as you say, they they do go for everybody. So it's not just directed against the, the horrible prefects and the headmaster, but it, it seems to be a kind of like an all-out assault. I mean, I, I, mean I, I think that, to me, that's not something that should be leveled as a criticism, because I think that these are sort of young boys, and it, it, it's, you know, their conception of revolution, which I think shouldn't necessarily be taken as a very, you know, sort of correct, you know, sort of Marxist-style class revolution. I think this is about a kind of romanticism, and I see them as a they're a band of romantics, and I think it's it's as much about that liberation of a kind of primal energy, I think, that motivates them. I think that's really the source of the rebellion. It's against this sense of confinement and constriction and repression that the school represents. So to me, it's also just like this outburst of rage and of, of, of this kind of wild, you know, romanticism as much as it's kind of a, a revolution in a kind of political sense. He sort of either nods to it or makes fun of it a little bit in at the very end of Oh Lucky Man, when Malcolm McDowell walks past this graffiti on the side of a fence that says like something like revolution is the opiate of the intellectuals or something. <laughs> so like it's clearly meant to be kind of a juvenile fantasy from people who don't understand the real conception of violence, but it's more powerful because they uh, target everyone and it's not just like a specific enemy that they're they're trying to destroy. It's everyone is complicit in this system in which they're made to be so miserable. It's interesting that idea of complicity because um, I, I I agree with that too. I think there is a sense in which everybody is complicit, and it's not just you know taking out the the ringleader or taking out the headmaster. And to me, it almost relates to the scene of the history master when he's talking about um, history and he's saying about uh, you know it's not just a matter of evil dictators, and there is that kind of rejection in that. Um, in that moment of this great man theory or of this great villain theory of history. And I think that, you know, the gist of what he's saying is that, you know, are we all complicit in, you know, the terrible things that happen throughout history? And I think in a way that's almost like a little comment on, I think, the stance that they take at the end where, you know, everybody somehow is guilty, everybody is involved in this. We should probably already call out this guy. This is Graham Crowden playing this history uh, master here. Um, 
and he's going to show up in the other movies as well in various capacities. And he is fucking fantastic. He is such a joy to watch. And I love his introduction in the film when he is riding his bicycle through the halls and just has the kids like waiting there for him to take his bicycle before he just kind of saunters up to the front of the room. <laughs> he's fantastic. Yeah, in a way, he kind of reminds me a little bit of of sort of like a Donald Sutherland type performer, how he he's such a great actor, like he can be kind of goofy and kind of restrained, but he's very charismatic at the same time. And one thing that I don't think we've mentioned yet, if you haven't seen all of these movies, Lindsay Anderson does this great thing where he has a lot of people return for different roles. Like, so not only Malcolm McDowell, it's like, yes, Mick Travis has the same name in all three movies, but he's so different. And he does that with all of these sort of minor characters too, in a way that is very Brechtian, but very funny. And, you know, you mentioned the headmaster being shot in the head. I, Peter Jeffrey, he plays Inspector Trout in the abominable Dr. Fibes movies. And so I can't see him without thinking of Trout. And so I, I think he plays up some of that satire intentionally, especially as you get through the series, like, oh, we're seeing this guy again, but they're all amazing. Yeah, that 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 reference to actors and that kind of recognition factor, I think, is really interesting because uh, another of the kind of cherished performers that Anderson had was uh, Arthur Lowe, who I think is basically in all but one of Anderson's theatrical films, and he plays here the housemaster. And I remember the first time when I saw it at the cinema in 2003, I mean, when as soon as Arthur Lowe appeared on screen, there was a a titter in the audience and I mean not out not out of any disrespect but because he's so much associated with the figure of um, a character called Captain Mannering in the sitcom Dad's Army which is one of the most beloved British sitcoms and I mean he was always you know this complete embodiment of just pompous uh, but but like you know undeservedly pompous authority and I think that's kind of the character that he plays all through the Anderson films really in, in one variant or another, including Dr. Munda in uh, Oh Lucky Man. And uh, I think that's one of the things that I really like as well about how the films interact with each other, because, I mean, they're not really like a sort of a sequential trilogy in the sense that they follow a sort of linear story, but it's kind of like a universe in a way where you do have these types of characters that recur. And I mean, sometimes they have the same names and sometimes they're just a type of character played by the same actor. And uh, I think there are a few, aren't there, like Biles, who I think is in all of them. And uh, Dr. Miller, of course, is in two of them. But uh, I I think it's this sense of, you know, you will meet the same kind of characters in different forms and in different circumstances. He doubles down on that in O Lucky Man by having these same people from the other movie show up and then play multiple characters. So, like, at first I thought it was going crazy because I was like, wait a second. So, Sir Ralph Richardson, he was earlier and then here he is here. And then I started noticing other people that were showing up in multiple roles as well. I was like, oh, okay, this really changes how I'm seeing O Lucky Man. And then there are times where I was like, all right, well, is Helen Mirren supposed to be the same person here versus here? But I think she is. But then, yeah, other people will kind of switch it up and play two, sometimes even three roles. It's incredible. There, I, I can't think of another trilogy or even film series that attempts anything like this. 
No, the closest I got is the, uh, you know, El Mariachi, Desperado, and Once Upon a Time in Mexico. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> Just dead silence on our <laughs> Jonathan, you mentioned how episodic this film is, and that was one thing that was kind of keeping me away the first time I watched it, was just that it is like little episodes. It's not even like major things, and sometimes they'll speak to each other, and sometimes it's just like, okay, this thing happened. And I think some of that might be coming from that original screenplay of Sherwin and Hollitz, and just, I mean, they wrote this when they were very young, and some of those things, I think, stayed through the screenplay all through the evolution of it. I think it took, what, eight years for them to finally get this made, but then other things, I can feel more of that after having seen Lindsay Anderson stuff. Now I'm like, okay, that feels more like a Lindsay Anderson thing. But then you hear some of the dialogue and it's like, okay, that feels very much like a David Sherwin thing, especially when you've got watching these with commentaries and you hear Malcolm McDowell going, that's David Sherwin. That's his, his dialogue. It's like, okay. All right, Malcolm. I, no, I think you totally can tell the difference. I mean, maybe not the first time you watch If, but even if you just watch the trilogy and then go back to If, it's very clear what parts are like classic Lindsay and what parts are not. And in a way, I think that maybe that makes If a good place to start because it's a little bit more accessible maybe i mean like this sporting life is pretty accessible but it's maybe more grounded in a specific narrative whereas the other two are just all the fuck over the place which i love about them but it's it's so hard to say like if i was trying to uh whenever i did britannia hospital i was trying to explain to someone the plot of oh lucky man and it's like Every every plot description you see, it's like Malcolm McDowell becomes a coffee salesman. And it's like, that's not the movie, though. It's like he does. That's true. It is factually correct. But like, how do you say in a sentence what Oh Lucky Man is about? <laughs> I mean, you can say if it's about a revolution at a school, but that's basically like the last five minutes. I mean, it's really all of the other stuff that adds into it that is like, okay, this is the interesting stuff. And to see these episodes and to see how these characters are interact and or not you know it's, it's interesting that we don't get like a lot of the relationship between the Bobby Phillips character played by Rupert Webster and the Wallace character played by Richard Warwick like we know they're in the same circle at times and then there's one moment where they're both in bed together and I'm like okay this is interesting is this supposed to be more than two people sharing the same bed. I think it is, but it just feels like it kind of goes there, especially when I'm reading Sherwin's book and he's just like, oh yeah, we were writing about all the buggering that takes place in the school. I was like, oh, okay. But but with them, it seems like an actual relationship because, and I think you see this so rarely in films in general, but especially films before, I don't know, like 1995, the, the sort of attraction flirtation scene that happens right before that fencing sequence, when they're, they're on like different levels of the gym, and uh, the younger one is getting changed. And he's watching that like solo gymnastics performance. And it's such a typical like, 
you know, their eyes meeting, they're attracted to each other, but you very rarely get something like that for gay characters, especially younger gay care. I mean, it's, it's sort of left ambiguous about whether anyone in this film is actually gay or just this is the environment that they're living in and there are no girls there. But I love the way that the scene, the film sort of quietly develops those scenes and you don't get all of this expository dialogue about it, which is refreshing. But at the same time, you have that really nice scene of them in bed together, which I love. And then they're sort of together blowing up the school at the the end of the film. (laughs) And there's a conversation with them, I think, as well, later at one point, isn't there? And there is that sense that they really are equals to one another. And uh, I agree about that idea that I think this represents a kind of positive sexuality or a positive relationship where... You know, you see the relationship between the the whips, you know, the prefects with their what they call their scum, which is, again, sexualized, but in a kind of uh, quite unpleasant way. I mean, it's really all about power and it's this kind of abusive, exploitative relationship. So, again, I think it's making that contrast between, you know, these different expressions of sexuality. I think with the prefects, it's really about, you know, just the exercise of power and also the hypocrisy in that they are meant to represent this upholding of tradition, this upholding of standards, but actually, you know, they have this this other side to them. And uh, I like the way that that is just taken for granted as well, though, the, the, the scene in the, in the gym. It does, as you say, it doesn't give you a lot of exposition about that. I think another thing actually, though, that does date the film in the time is the representation of just the sort of casual paedophilia really as well, when you see like the master, you know, tweak, I think it's the chaplain, isn't it, who tweaks the nipple of one of the, young boys and uh, I think I read somewhere that um, I believe Cheltenham College I think had a lot of complaints about the film I think they, they were very unhappy after they you know after people saw the finished film and uh, but apparently there was no objection to the representation of, of, of the sort of paedophiliac you know elements of the, of the masters so apparently that wasn't something that was really even an issue you know and <laughs> I think that tells you something about how prevalent this was really even in even in the late 60s I think well, we should mention that this was shot uh, at a real school, a lot of it, and that they did use a dummy script in order to <laughs> shoot this stuff here. So they left out all the gun violence and things like that, um, and then they had copies of this dummy script that were floating around just in case anybody ever caught wind of it and, and you know managed to pick up a copy of the script. They wouldn't have the objectionable parts in it, which I just absolutely love. I love when films are shot like that. I know we talked about the violence being really daring and unexpected and all of these experimental things he does with switching to black and white, but it's just like every aspect of the movie is really out there and in your face. And it's just like, there's, I can't imagine anything else being quite like it. And there are definitely other sort of maybe kind of transgressive films shot at, uh, shot at boarding schools and i'm trying to now think of the german one uh mention in uniform it's not what i was thinking of but that is a definitely a good example uh, uh the harry potter series so mick is a gryffindor and roundtree is a slytherin definitely hagrid is in britannia hospital though so i guess that is, is a- true <laughs> <laughs> that is true 
No, no, it's um okay, it's it's on the tip of my tongue. It's a Volker Schlondorf film. Ah, uh, yeah, Young Torless. Yeah, Young Torless. So Young Torless has a lot of, and that's I think 1966. That has a lot of weird parallels in terms of these themes of like power and sadism and homosexuality. But this is just so much more insane than Young Torless. Like. This movie makes Young Torless look like it's kind of like a restrained gothic melodrama in comparison. Even with Barbara Steele, yeah, it still doesn't. <laughs> it also kind of has its cake and eat it too, because I think it's rooted enough in the reality of British public schools, which I guess are already such a weird institution, that it just gives you enough that's credible and that's plausible. And then it just I think a lot of the time as well, it's just twisting things slightly or it's just inventing slightly, but basing it on a real thing. So, you know, you get some of these bizarre terms like bump tutor, for instance, which <laughs> yes. uh, I, I, I did look for and I didn't find any reference to it other than the film. But I mean, it does sound like something that would have been a real thing at a public school and... Um, I mean, I think the, the, the terminology, too, of like the, the whips and the scum, I mean, I, I think whips is an existing term. I think scum, I'm not sure, maybe was invented for this, but the real name for that system of, you know, basically having the younger boys serve the older ones, I mean, it's called fagging, which, I mean, in itself is more bizarre than the, the terms in the film, I think. Uh, yeah, and can we talk about how that's basically, and the first time you see the movie, this is admittedly kind of confusing, but how it's established within the first like five minutes of the film because the one professor actually I don't know if he's a professor or if he's one of the older whips now that I think about it but he tells the younger boy to go warm a toilet seat for him yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh it's perfect and it's yeah you kind of know immediately you know how it, how he's intended to do that as well I mean it's it's <laughs> I think that's Roundtree isn't it who is like the head prefect yes he's like the most unpleasant and, and sadistic in fact i mean this may be a bizarre connection but the fact that you have the four you know it's a group of four whips isn't it this may seem a bizarre connection but it almost reminds me of a little bit of salo in that uh, you know they are these four guys with like completely unchecked power who actually even seem to dominate the masters it's not like the masters really have the upper hand over them they are kind of the ones who you know represent and enforce the power I think it's the fact that they're kind of living in these quarters in kind of like relative luxury, I guess, you know, as, as boarding school pupils go. And uh, it, it was just something that struck me watching it again, really, that, uh, you know, and I think, you know, you really, in fact, I think this was one of the complaints I read somewhere that people felt unhappy that they didn't really get their comeuppance at the end. You know, you do want to see them go down, I think. I want to talk about the moment that, made me realize that this movie was absolutely brilliant. At first, I thought it was going to be the way that they shot the actual caning thing, because that's exactly the way that I would have shot it if I were a film director. The whole idea of keeping the camera outside of it until Mick gets uh, his turn, and then cutting inside. Love that. But what it was, was when they end up shooting one of the staff members, was it the chaplain? I can't remember who it is. When they have to apologize to him, and, and they open up a drawer, and he pops up, and they walk over and shake his hand. <laughs> <laughs> that I was just like, my mouth was on the floor going, wow, okay, I didn't expect that, but I am absolutely loving this. 
yeah, apparently there's a story that Harold Pinter really hated that scene, and he told Lindy, Lindy Anderson, you know, this is just like so bizarre and so silly that nobody's ever going to buy this. But uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's brilliant. I think it's just late enough in the film that I think you know you can accept that sort of complete like you know it's completely unrealistic, but I think also symbolically quite accurate sort of moment because I think that. It's, it's this idea that, you know, religion is this thing that, you know, you keep in this drawer, you, you just wheel it out for, you know, convenient purposes and then you shove it back in. And I think it represents maybe the this, this sort of the, the place that the chaplain has, you know, with, within this power structure. But, yeah, I think it's the shaking hands as well, isn't it? And just the, the, just the gentility of it. And um, I love the headmaster's line, you know, he says, I take this seriously. It's kind of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's so much, like... Not that we shouldn't think about it as its own film, but like when you look at the trilogy as a whole, there's so many of those great moments where he just like skewers figures of authority. It's in such an interesting way because unlike in something like Solo, where you have these really distinctive individual characters who are painted a certain way as maybe being, you know, corrupt or sadistic or just evil, here it's like even the sort of polite, well-meaning people in positions of authority, it's like they're all complicit in this system that we've been talking about. And even if they're not like violent or threatening, they are perpetrating this just like totally toxic system. And I think if shows that in the most literal, non-satirical way, because when it, by the time you get to Britannia, Britannia Hospital, it's just fucking ridiculous. <laughs> That's one of the things that's really great about the way that it shows the headmaster, because I think it would have been much more conventional just to make him this very stuffy, traditionalist kind of figure. But I think it is a brilliant touch to make him, you know, somebody who sees himself as a kind of reforming liberal. And he really represents that idea of, you know, technocracy, of progress. And of course, he, you know, is the one who is singled out for shooting at the end, which I think is something that maybe another filmmaker might not have done. But I think in a way, he's almost the most contemptible because he's the one who lends that veneer of liberalism to this very sort of corrupt and unpleasant system. So um, and I think it, it also reflects that era, too, because, I mean, the prime minister at the time that this was made was Harold Wilson, who was a Labour prime minister. and. I think he espoused a similar kind of belief in progress, you know, progress through technology and this idea that, you know, Britain now is moving to this more egalitarian, you know, uh, progressive society. And I, I don't think it's meant to be a direct parody of Wilson because, I mean, he doesn't look or sound like him, but I think it's meant to represent that rather smug belief that Britain had at this time that, you know, things are progressing that we're moving to this more you know egalitarian free society and of course you know completely illusory in many ways and uh, yeah i think he's a great character i think and uh, apparently some of the dialogue that he has i think was taken directly from uh, i can't remember the name of the book but it was basically like a guidebook that was produced by eton college by the eton school so i think some of that is actually verbatim Let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play an interview with Johnny the Crusader himself, David Wood, the author of Filming If, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Dark Destinations is a travelogue podcast unlike any other. Cities and towns distinguished by their oddity and the fact that they don't exist. Join us at Dark Destinations, where we explore the most infamous locations to be found in fiction, from Arkham to Zyera and every point in between. We risk life, limb, and our sanity 
for your listening pleasure. Dark Destinations can be found at FatherMalone.com and on iTunes. Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Catchers, both Android and iOS. It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, the projection booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven hour Conan episode, the six hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. I am talking with David Wood, and I asked him first off how he came to write his book, Filming If. There is a Lindsay Anderson Foundation now. It was started by a number of people who either had worked with him or admired him. They started inviting me along to meetings. At one point, somebody said, oh, you do realize that in two years' time, it'll be IF's 50th anniversary. So this would have been in 2016. And it made me think that for years, I'd been telling various stories because it was a very... I, you know, it was a very impressionable time for me. It was the first film I'd done. And there were certain things that you never forget. And, I, and I'd and i often thought, well, I ought to write them down, really. But I knew I couldn't write an academic book either about filmmaking or about the political situation, which may have inspired certain aspects of the film. All I could do was to look at it from the point of view of a young actor working on a film and, and observing what was going on and uh, and remembering that. So that was what I did. And um, quite a few people have said they enjoyed it. So it was worth doing. I'm told that there is very little else like it. I mean, there are a number of books which do minutely uh, examine certain aspects of the film, looking at it from various points of view, particularly, I suppose, the political point of view. And um uh, and I, I have been asked all sorts of questions about, you know, what were you thinking at the time about 
what was going on, the, the rioting that started going on in Paris, the students in Paris when you were filming and all this. And it's always been very difficult because that aspect of it was never a major thing. Lindsay didn't talk about that much, uh, although it is true. I think I say in the book that on the day that the Paris riots took over the headlines in all the newspapers, uh, we came into work and he was absolutely delighted. And he was saying, of course, that he, that we, he was being, uh, prophetic. Uh, and, and I think <laughs> there was a, an element of annoyance with him that people would think that when the film came out, it had been inspired by the Paris riots. Well, of course, we were all, we nearly finished making it by then. So I think that the timing for him was not quite appropriate, but um, uh, he, he felt that he was picking up on a, a, a movement or a zeitgeist or whatever you might like to call it that was um, particularly relevant at, at the time. But um, no, as I say, the book is much more to do with the day-to-day -day, um, filming routine and, and the, the challenges that presented. You were coming from more of a theater background, and when you move from theater into film, I imagine that your acting style has to change just because of the medium itself. Well, I suppose that's true. Um, well, it was never mentioned overtly, really, but I was 24. Malcolm and I were the two oldest boys, as it were, on the film. We were older than the prefects, the unpleasant whips, as they're called. The boy who played Hugh, who played Denson, who's the rather Himmler-like one in the in the little glasses, very unpleasant <laughs> superior authority figure. Um, he was only seventeen. Uh, the actor playing it, and we we were twenty-four. That does show really that it's not just a question of age in terms of numbers. Some people do look a bit younger, or some people act a bit younger, you know, and all that. But I had by then done quite a lot of theatre, particularly at university, but also professionally. Not that much. And, and when I had what became, um, I suppose, a sort of film test without me realising it, uh, it was when I'd already had the audition for the film, uh, which involved uh, leaving uh, the theatre where I was working, which was 150 miles from London, uh, and it meant getting on an early train to go to this audition and then uh, get back. And, I, and we were rehearsing uh, one play and uh, performing another. So they weren't very pleased to see me leave for a day, but they gave me the day off. And that audition had gone as far as one could tell, okay, but I had no idea that they were interested in me. And then suddenly this strange request came through on a Sunday to go to a, a sort of viewing studio in, in Soho where they were uh, looking at costume ideas and they wanted me to try on the school uniform and uh, model it, as it were. And I remember thinking, it's very odd. Here am I in, in, in Worcester, in the, in the Midlands of England, and I've got to go down to there. You know, why couldn't they have found a young actor who lives in London? But obviously I went and I put the uniform on and... Lindsay came in and they had the camera going and, and he suddenly said, oh, he said, it must be very boring for you, this. He said, why not look at the camera as though you hate it? <laughs> and so I, I, I tried and then he said, and, and do something else. And, and as I say, this became, I think, a, a, a film test. But at no point did I really realize what was going on. I thought it was a bit of a game. And later on, I think it's true to say that one thing I, I never 
learnt particularly was that it's better to do less on film than it is to do in the theatre. I was in a film some years later with uh, Roger Moore and Anthony Perkins and James Mason. In your country, it was called For Folks, yes. Uh, over here, it was called North Sea Hijack. Andrew V. McLaglan was the giant director. He was about six foot seven and uh, a lovely man. There was one particular scene. It was a night shoot and we were on an oil rig supply vessel, a boat which was moored, but we had to pretend that a helicopter was coming. And there were only, I think, four of us in the scene. It wasn't for me. It was extraordinary because there was Anthony Perkins, who I I got on rather well with because we used to do word games together. Apparently, he and Stephen Sondheim used to do a lot of word games, and um, and so he introduced some when we were boringly waiting for filming to start. But he was there, and Roger Moore was there, and um, and James Mason, and uh, each of us were given a close up. And the way, the sort of usual way of doing things is that the junior person does the first close-up and it progresses through the hierarchy until the star does the final one. McLaglan said, uh, okay, so there are the helicopters coming in. And he said, I, I, I look at this stick. And he had the piece of wood. And he said, look at the top of the stick. That's the helicopter. And he would walk along and one sort of followed the progress of the helicopter. So they did my close-up, and I being still pretty green, really, <laughs> not having the, the savvy to know any better, I was sort of looking up and screwing my eyes as if to say, now, is that a helicopter? Yes, yes, I think it, oh, yes, it is. And I might do a little nod of the head and then looking round and the head would turn a bit and then I'd scrunch up my eyes again. And that was that. Well, of course, the next one to do it was James Mason. He hardly moved a muscle, but he did. He did a, a, a little, sudden little look and a, a slight furrowing of the eyebrows and his uh, forehead, and that was that. And then Anthony Perkins, he had a sort of frown on from the start and did absolutely nothing at all. Uh, as far as I could see, his face did not change at all. And of course, when you looked at the film later on, uh, everything was there. It was all working. He he was following this thing, and it, he was concerned about it for this reason. And, and within the story, you knew exactly what was going on in that head. But physically, he did nothing. And then it came to Roger Moore, who did a sort of a raising of an eyebrow, which was a fairly usual thing for him to do, and a slight, slight little smile, you know, very slightly. But I learned a lot that day because uh, it was too late to say, can I do mine again, please? <laughs> Lindsay, uh, on, on if, he, he wouldn't really direct in that way. He wouldn't say you're being too big, you're moving your face too much. I don't remember really uh, any of that uh, ever. And yet, when I see the film again, which I have seen it a few times fairly recently, because having written my little book, I, I do get invited to screenings at festivals and so on, when particularly during the 50th anniversary of the film. And I have to say, I don't feel that uh, I'm overdoing it too, too much. Whereas later on, there were television performances I gave where um, I can't bear to look at them because my face is so ridiculously mobile. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, I think the technique is slightly different, obviously, from theatre. And you're not being required to 
project your voice in, in quite the same way. The reality that you're presenting doesn't have to be quite as heightened, perhaps, as in a stage performance. Certainly, now I look back and uh, and wish I'd studied film technique. I wish there was a way that one could have learned a little bit. Uh, Michael Caine once did a brilliant television program where he was working with students, and um, he was just giving them a masterclass. And uh, and if I'm honest, what he was saying was do as little as you possibly can. <laughs> and and with, with him, it is true. It it, it, it works. And uh, and as long as the the brain is working and uh, the, um, uh, the the thought process is there, I think probably the truth will come out. But uh, I hadn't really learned that, I have to admit, in those days. Having once been a young man myself, I know that I was usually up to no good. And I have to imagine that with so many boys and young men on the set for this, there had to have been a lot of shenanigans happening. <laughs> Not as many as you might think. The morning very often used to begin with all the young actors playing boys who were being used that day being called to the set or quite near the set and stood up in a line. And Stephen Frears, who of course later went on to become a very gifted director himself, he was the third assistant on the film. He would go down the line <laughs> inspecting everybody uh, to see whether their uniforms were looking all right. And uh, it was almost like being at a, a very strict boarding school, which indeed we were meant to be in as uh, within the film. But it was almost as though he was looking to see if our fingernails were clean and if if, if our shoes were well polished and so on. And uh, Malcolm and I <laughs> used to resent this very much. And uh, Richard Warwick as well, who played the third one of us. Um, and we used to uh, escape this event very often. We used to uh, pretend that we were busy being made up or something else uh, took precedence. So I suppose we were a bit naughty. On, on the set, on the whole, we were very good. Malcolm used to be a bit naughty because he always used to uh, draw attention to himself if he could. He wanted to make absolutely sure everybody knew who he was. And so you'd just be ready to do a take and you'd been rehearsing and you were really geared up to do it and he would suddenly ask for a glass of water. And uh, the, the tension and the, uh, the mood completely evaporated. No, the sort of things that... I remember were on the very first day of uh, shooting, or it wasn't even the first day, it was the day before, I suppose, and we'd arrived in Cheltenham, which is the town where we were filming at Cheltenham College, which was a big, as we call them, public schools uh, in the kind of, you know, old historical one, and indeed was the school that Lindsay Anderson himself had been at. Malcolm, Richard and I were in a guest house. Uh, we weren't in a hotel. And we were in a different hotel from the one in which the prefects, the whips, our adversaries in the film, as it were, those actors were. They, they, the, the idea was that Lindsay didn't want us socializing too much because he wanted to encourage a, a distance, a sort of frisson between us. And uh, uh, when we found this out, which was on the very first day we arrived, and we were told that they were somewhere else. Malcolm immediately said, oh, come on, let's go and see them. And so we did, and we met them and had a drink with them. We didn't dare tell Lindsay this, of course, and we had to pretend that we'd never met again before when we were on the set for the first time with them. There was another time which was great fun. There's a scene in the headmaster's uh, study uh, where we're being told off for shooting the chaplain. It's a very surreal scene, which um, a lot of people 
had a bit of difficulty with that theme, and uh, even Harold Pinter, uh, apparently, uh, who loved the film, but Harold Pinter being at the time uh, the, the, the greatest playwright we had, but apparently he was slightly baffled by the scene of the chaplain coming out of the drawer in the headmaster's study and shaking hands with the boys, he who had apparently been shot. Pinter apparently said that uh, it was taking the surreal a little bit too far, and maybe that was the one moment in the film which was not quite working in that way. I don't think Lindsay quite saw it that way, but uh, and it was always interesting with audiences, because some audiences would find that terribly funny when the chaplain appeared. Others would be absolutely bemused by it, because they thought he was dead, as it were. And the idea of it being a fantasy scene the shooting, wishful thinking, whatever you like to call it, hadn't entered their heads. But uh, uh, shooting that scene was in itself quite difficult because Jeffrey Chater, who was the wonderful man who played the chaplain, him raising himself out of the drawer to shake hands, it was very funny. And we found it very, very difficult not to laugh. And it was on one take whereby he would lift himself out and the three of us, one by one, would go up and very formally and seriously shake his hand and then walk away. Um, it all had to be done in one take. And <laughs> time after time, one of the three of us would break up and uh, corpse and, and laugh. And Lindsay got very cross, I remember, and said, you know, you're meant to be professionals. <laughs> and uh, eventually we got it done. But uh, they uh, were shooting it. It was the only scene that was shot in a, uh, a rather grand house in Knightsbridge, in the West End of London, we'd been all in all sorts of other places, but we'd never been there before. And it was very near Harrods. And Harrods, as you know, is a big department store, a very expensive store. And we were allowed out for lunch. So in our school uniforms, we went out for lunch and, and we were so near Harrods, we thought, oh, we'll go in here. And there was a, right at the top of Harrods, there was a department store of, of men's clothes called Way In. I think it was meant to be way out, you know, they were, the clothes were fairly way out because we were in the 60s. And uh, so we went up to the top floor and I don't know that we were uh, doing anything particularly uh, offensive, but we were making quite a lot of noise and looking at the clothes. And I think the assistants were a bit worried about us and I think we were asked to leave. But <laughs> other than that, I can't remember an instance where we were misbehaving too much. I think we were pretty good, really. How much of the film was shot on location versus on a soundstage? Was any of it shot on a soundstage? What we called the study scenes. Studies are the, the little bedrooms, as it were, that the, the, the boys had. And you see Malcolm in his, you see me arrive and talk to him, and you see various scenes, particularly where the bonding against authority, where we cut each other's wrists and bond with blood and all those things. All those scenes did take place on a, a soundstage at Merton Park Studios. And Merton Park Studios, funnily enough, uh, is probably a mile or a mile and a half away from where I'm sitting now. I'm at home in Wimbledon, which is uh, where they play the tennis. Um, and Merton Park is just down the road. And the studios have long since gone. And there's a an apartment block uh, on the site. But it was not obviously one of the bigger studios like Elstree or Shepperton or Pinewood, but they did have enough room for them to create these studies. I suppose they were cheaper too than going to one of the main ones. 
we worked there, but that was right towards the end of filming. And the reason for that was that Lindsay, he was very keen that we should get to know each other, the three of us. And gradually, he thought, as the filming progressed, because I think the whole thing only took six weeks, he didn't want the more intimate scenes between us to take place too early in the schedule. So all those scenes were done uh, one after the other, as it were, at the end. But otherwise, we were at, as I say, uh, Cheltenham College. But a lot of people assume that we were there for much longer than we were. Cheltenham College was used for the exteriors. So uh, there are some rather beautiful, almost nostalgic, through-the-mist type shots, establishing shots of where you were, uh, which were not necessarily featuring actors at all, but were just atmospheric picture postcard type shots. And they were all done at Cheltenham, as were the scenes of the shooting uh, at the end, uh, near the end, uh, when we were up on the roof, uh, shooting down at everybody coming out of the Founders' Day ceremony. That was at Cheltenham, on what we call the field day, when everybody's dressed in army uniform, and they all troop out, and the chaplain is on a horse, and so on, and you see a tank, and God knows what. That was all done at Cheltenham. And uh, the uh, the scene where the Founders' Day speeches are made and where we are under the stage and bringing smoke up and there's chaos, that took place in a church hall. It wasn't within the school, but it was a church hall round the corner, which has since been demolished, I think. That was in Cheltenham, the, the city, as it were. And the scenes where Malcolm and I are escaping from the football match and we're seen crossing over there's a, a roundabout and we're pretending to be gangsters in a film or whatever we're doing and um i'm rolling on the ground and malcolm's fighting me and uh, uh, those were all done in cheltenham but the majority of the school scenes funnily enough were done at another school which was very near elstree and i don't know whether the unit was based at elstree studios but certainly aldenham school near Watford uh, and near Elstree was where the gymnasium scene, the, 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 the beating scene took place there. The shower scenes, which were done in these strange open-air showers that the school used. I mean, that, that school was fairly Spartan and fairly primitive. And the dormitory scenes were all done at Aldenham as well. Apparently, the story goes that when they were looking at the school as a view to using it as a location. They looked at these interiors, particularly the dormitories, and, and they were so badly decorated and they looked so terrible that Lindsay said, we're going to have to redecorate these, otherwise people won't believe it. They'll think we're exaggerating and making them far worse than they really are. And the school agreed to this redecoration as long as they were put back to their original state afterwards. So they had to uh, go back to the sludgy green color or whatever they were. I think we were probably filming at Aldenham for uh, a bit longer than uh, we were at Cheltenham. And then there was a third school, which was uh, in a place called Beddington Park. And the reason that school was chosen was that it had very long corridors. And so all the corridor shots of us going, uh, walking down to the prefect's study and the shot right at the beginning where all the boys are reassembling for school and going up the stairs and so on. They, they were done in this school. But 
we, we were only there for probably um, a couple of days. The transport cafe, as we would call it, where the famous cafe scene takes place, where we meet the girl played by the wonderful Christine Noonan, that was on a main road, a, a real one, and I'm not quite sure exactly where it was. I have to admit we were driven there and then <laughs> we, we shot for the day and then we drove back and I'm not quite sure where it was, but we were based at, uh, at um, Cheltenham at the time, I think. But that was a real location. It wasn't a, a studio. And uh, all the truck drivers who usually had their breakfast <laughs> at this cafe, they were all sent round the back and they opened up a, a window and they were served in the back while we were filming in the actual cafe part. That, that was good. It was, it was always quite good when we went somewhere new just for the day or two days. But, it was, but it was, the whole thing was very exciting. But the whole thing was quite challenging too um, because the motorbike scene, part of which was at that cafe, that was pretty terrifying because Malcolm had never driven a motorbike before. They brought along a tiny little machine. I don't know what it would have been, you know, 50cc, 100cc thing for him to learn on. And then when this thing arrived that he had to actually drive with me on the back, uh, it was a 800cc or something, this monstrous machine. And we had no crash helmets. The bike wasn't taxed or licensed as far as I know. We were on a public road half the time. I had a, a scarf on, rather like an Isadora Duncan scarf, the, the one with which she strangled herself in her car. And I had visions of it get, getting caught up in the wheel. Or something. So it was quite terrifying, but at the same time, of course, very exciting. And all Lindsay would do every time we finished doing one of these takes of roaring along the countryside and going round and round about, all he would say is, right, do it again faster, please, faster. <laughs> and the, the, the stuntman... Uh, who was in charge of us doing something like that, uh, a man called Peter Braham. He was overheard by me talking to Michael Medwin, one of the producers, just before we did it. He was saying, um, uh, Mr. Medwin, I, I will not take any responsibility for what happens today. <laughs> he said, uh, uh, you know, when you have two people on a motorbike on their own, there is nothing I can do to make it safer or <laughs> make it easier for them. Uh, and of course, not only that, we were shooting it right at the end of shooting. So they already had a film in the can, even if we were killed. And we were very aware of that. But Malcolm was very good because he, um, uh, he you know, he was very devil may care. Well, in, a, in a way, our characters in the film were a bit similar to our own, I suppose. I was, um, I, I was the more sensitive of the two. <laughs> but Malcolm was very there's actually a, a shot that where you can see him sort of looking over his shoulder a bit as we're zooming along really fast, and he's almost sort of saying to me, "Are you all right? Are you okay?" And uh, and I sort of do a, a tentative little nod, putting on a very false smile as though I'm enjoying every second. <laughs> you were talking about the, the the rooms where you were supposed to be quote unquote living. Tell me a little bit about the decorations of those rooms. How much of that was you guys versus how much of that was production design? Especially, I'm talking about the, all of the photos that are everywhere in those rooms. When I knew I was cast, I was invited, along with Malcolm and Richard, to meet Lindsay and some other people connected with the film for lunch in Soho in, in London. And, uh, and I think it must have been at a weekend because uh, I'm sure I would have been working on stage during the week. It was a very odd lunch because I had not seen a script. 
And as the lunch progressed, I realized that the other two had. And I was a little bit nervous to say anything. I, 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 I thought, should, should I tell them that I haven't had it? And then I thought, well, maybe I'm not meant to have one. And, and I hadn't had much experience in the business. And I was, was, was um, reluctant to push myself forward. So I didn't mention it. Um, and uh, we were asked if we would look out for pictures in newspapers, which uh, we would like to put up on the walls of our studies of our, these bedrooms at the school. Of course, I didn't know what was meant by that because I thought, uh, are these meant to be pictures that the character would choose or that I, David Wood, <laughs> actor would choose? So I blindly started looking at magazines and finding a few pictures uh, of an animal or something like that, not quite realizing what it was all for. Now, when it came to it, um, we were taken to the Merton Park Studios where the studies had been built uh, as a, a set. We were taken there the day before, I think, and asked to actually decorate our own rooms. So I put various pictures up, which uh, they might have included the odd film star, I suppose. I, I can't really remember, but uh, they might have been views of um, nice places. But certainly I wasn't thinking of putting up anything to do with um, Lenin or to do with the royal family or to do with a, a guerrilla warfare person with a machine gun. That wouldn't have entered my mind as David would. It might have done as Johnny the character, I suppose. But I think what happened was that the uh, designers and Lindsay, Lindsay was very much involved in the putting up of these pictures. And I think that they helped and indeed injusti uh, adjusted and <laughs> improved and, and eventually got what they wanted so that the pictures were in the right position and the right sort of pictures for what they wanted. But yes, we, we, we were involved. But it, it wasn't until I got a script and, and I had been meant to receive a script, uh, I found out later, and they were surprised that I hadn't got one, but it did become a little bit clearer then. We weren't simply puppets. I think we were asked to use our own intelligence to a certain extent, but I don't think that my choice of pictures would have pleased Lindsay at all. I don't know. It would be nothing like what he wanted. <laughs> You talked a little bit in the book about the black and white versus the color. Are they using two different cameras for that, or what, what's going on with the switching of the formats? There have been many, many stories about the black and white stroke color. The rumor was that Lindsay ran out of color stock and, and that they'd run out of money, uh, and so they had to resort to black and white. That that wasn't true at all, and that was proved, as far as I was concerned, that very early on we were at Cheltenham where as I mentioned, we started filming, and one of the very first shots was in the chapel. The chapel was a old and very beautiful and gothic. It had a big stained glass window, really very colourful at the back. So we shot in there for a day, and uh, Lindsay used to like us going to see the, the rushes every day of what had happened the day before. That didn't continue, actually. We didn't do that all the time, but near the beginning, he wanted us to see what we had filmed the day before. And we used to go to the Odeon Cinema in Cheltenham after the final showing of whatever film was showing on that day. We, the actors, would be upstairs and the uh, the powers that be were downstairs in the, in the stalls 
And you could hear them talking down below. And I do remember that you would see part of the chapel scene. It would be in color. To be honest, it looked, well, it, it looked like a stage set. It didn't look like the real thing. And, uh, and that we heard Lindsay down below saying, let's see it in black and white. And so they showed it in black and white. And he said, right, yes, we'll go for that. And my immediate thought was, well, he wants it in black and white because it looks more real, more documentary almost. And he doesn't want this big stained glass window at the back to look as though it is um, just a, a, a piece of scenery from a stage set. And indeed, that was what seemed to happen as time wore on, that if something to him looked better in black and white, then he would do it in that. And if it looked better in color, it would be in color. And I sensed that there was a certain mischief in this as well, because a lot of people think, oh, well, the fantasy scenes must be the one that are in black and white and the reality are in color. Well, actually, that doesn't work, because <laughs> when you go through, <laughs> you can see that that's not the formula or the plan. And I get the feeling that maybe part of Lindsay was sitting, you know, well, in 50 years' time, people are still going to be wondering why on earth that bit's in color and that's in black and white. I'm not going to tell them. It is true to say that because the film was on a limited budget and they'd had problems and they did have problems with Paramount not wanting to pay for it for a while. And so because of that, Mirek, uh, that's Miroslav Ondracek, who was the lighting cameraman, brilliant. Czechoslovakian who had worked with Milos Forman and um, uh, and others and who Lindsay had met at a film festival, I think. He apparently did say that in order to light the chapel successfully and to make it look uh, real and to make it look as he would like, it would take an awful lot more equipment, an awful lot of more lighting stuff, and it would cost much more and it would take much more to do it. The decision was taken not to do that. So you could say that money was part of this, but I, I don't think it was all of it by any means. As I say, um, you can't uh, look at the scenes chronologically from the filming point of view and say, oh, well, they're all black and white at the end of the filming schedule. That just wasn't true. And you can't also say that uh, filming chronologically through the script there was never anything in the script which said, oh, this must be in black and white, this must be in color. So I think it was an, an arbitrary decision, which he took probably as much after shooting um, and probably during editing with quite a lot of it. But I'm not quite sure. You made an interesting point just then. You said, was it a different camera? What I don't know is whether on one print, that you do in uh, that you shoot in color, whether you can then look at that same print but but in black and white somehow, or whether it has to be two different prints which have been shot at the same time because the presumably the actual content would be the same. Uh, I don't know. You've opened a can of worms there. <laughs> I'm very curious what it was like for you to meet the Queen. <laughs> Yes, that was nothing to do with if, was it, I don't think. No, I've been in the, the position of meeting the Queen five times in my life. The first time was I was in a, a film called Aces High. And Aces High was uh, directed by Jack Gold, and Malcolm McDowell was also in it. And it was about seven years after If, and Malcolm and I were reunited, which was great. Because by then, of course, his career had taken off. He had done figures on a landscape for Losey, he'd done Clockwork Orange. So uh, he was coming in as um, the lead actor in 
aces high. And we had Christopher Plummer, Simon Ward within it, and there were small parts, actually, small cameo roles that uh, Ray Milland, amazingly, I, I have a photo where all of us are sitting, and there's Ray Milland and Trevor Howard, and even John Gielgud was in it playing the headmaster of, the, of a school. But, but um, we were suddenly told after we shot it that there was going to be a royal premiere, and so the Queen and uh, the Duke of Edinburgh were going to attend. So um, I immediately ordered a, a brand new uh, dinner jacket, tuxedo type thing, <laughs> because you had to have one, and, and, and we got ready. Now, by a strange synchronicity, my wife was about to have our first child, and in fact, our daughter was born the day before the royal premiere. So uh, we didn't know quite what to do, but the hospital said that uh, she would be allowed out to come to the premiere as long as she came back to the hospital afterwards. And so within, I don't know, 24 hours or 36 hours of giving birth, she came along and the Queen came down the line. And uh, I, I made a terrible mistake, really, because when you <laughs> when you meet her, uh, her eyes are extraordinarily um, powerful in the sense that you can't take your eyes off them, really. So she asked me one or two things. Did you really fly in the planes or something? And I had to say, no, 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 I don't think insurance would have allowed that. <laughs> uh, and then she carried on down. <clears throat> and uh, Richard Johnson, the actor, was next to me and suddenly uh, dug me in the ribs because my eyes had followed the Queen down to meet the next person. Uh, and when I swung back, having been dug in the ribs, of course, the Duke of Edinburgh was standing in front of me waiting to be talked to. And I'd completely forgotten that he was going to be there as well. But uh, uh, then uh, it was rather nice because the uh, immediate relatives of the actors had been put into a, a little a little pen uh, they, they 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 put a rope around a, a little area and so Jackie my wife was there and the duke of edinburgh very kindly did go over and uh, and speak to them so she had a quick word with him so that was the first time and then i had this other extraordinary experience where in 2006 i think it was uh, it was the queen's 80th birthday in my other role as a children's playwright, which round about the time of if I had already written my first children's play in 1967. And since then, I've written about 75 more and I've had my own company and uh, children's theatre has become arguably the most important thing that I do. And I was asked by the BBC and also by an organization um, who was setting up uh, a celebratory thing for the Queen's 80th birthday to write a play. And uh, the idea was there'd be this huge party in Buckingham Palace Gardens, which would be converted into a sort of theme park celebrating British children's literature. So there would be big things uh, about Alice in Wonderland and uh, Peter Pan, and uh, everybody was to be involved from the children's book world giving their services and giving their copyrights to allow me to write a play which would include as many iconic characters from British literature as possible, from children's literature. It was seven months of my life, and it, was, it wasn't an easy time, but it was, uh, I wouldn't have missed it for the world. Uh, but we had a lot of problems. Um, uh, we, we had to negotiate with Disney, uh, which was quite interesting, because <laughs> they flew 
a chief executive of Disney over to meet me because I wanted a scene where there were three bears, three famous bears, uh, and of course Goldilocks and the Three Bears um, is a is a, a sort of famous fairy tale or whatever. And I wanted these three bears. There was Paddington Bear, who is a famous uh, literary bear in this country, Rupert Bear, who is another one, and uh, and Winnie the Pooh. And of course, Winnie the Pooh is owned by Disney. And uh, Winnie the Pooh uh, is not allowed by Disney to share the screen with characters from any other stable. So this man flew over specially to see me, and we had talks, and it it was very difficult because uh, in the end, the only way that they would allow it to happen would be if Winnie the Pooh was isolated and uh, rather like the pandemic, actually. <laughs> they put a fence around him, <laughs> and the other two bears were allowed to come and wave to him and sort of ask the question, have you seen the Queen's handbag, which was the, the plot that was going on, that the Queen's handbag had been stolen. And, and Winnie the Pooh waved to them and said, no, I haven't, and they moved on. But they were not allowed to share the same shot as I had wanted them to do. But after that, um, the actual performance took place. Well, it was star-studded. I mean, we had a lot of very, very well-known people taking part on a huge stage in Buckingham Palace Gardens, and it was broadcast live on a Sunday afternoon to 8 million television viewers. And uh, we had all the Harry Potter people. We actually filmed their contribution as part of the story, on the set of Harry Potter. All sorts of people playing all sorts of characters, and it was it was an extraordinary thing. And uh, afterwards, I was presented to the Queen alongside Trevor Nunn, who's the Sir Trevor Nunn, the famous uh, theatre director uh, over here. I don't know whether she'd enjoyed it or not, but she, she said, oh, you're responsible for this, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I said, yes, it's all my fault, ma'am, it's all my fault. But she smiled nicely and, and, and walked away. But yeah, there was another occasion, which was uh, only a few years ago, when there was a big thing at Buckingham Palace to celebrate uh, young people in the arts and uh, the whole thing of young people and training in the arts. And uh, so drama schools and ballet schools and so on. Uh, there, there was a show put on, and uh, a, a number of us were invited. I wasn't quite sure why I was invited, really, but uh, and we hadn't realised we were all going to be presented to the Queen and Prince Philip. But we all filed through, and there were a lot of us there, and they had to just stand there shaking hands and so on. I wish they do, of course, terribly, terribly well. But um, uh, when it came to, uh, to me, I shook the hand and she, you can't, you're not allowed to say anything unless she says something to you. So uh, I just sort of looked and smiled and there was a, a bit of a delay because the Duke of Edinburgh had become rather interested in the person next to me who um, was having an animated conversation with them. The Queen looked over and rather irritated, I think, that uh, the line had come to a stop and then looked back to me and raised her eyebrows and just said, queue. And of course, uh, we are very good at queuing in our country, as you probably know, which means standing in line. But she just used this one word, queue, and that was it. But the other time that was when I received the OBE, which is the Order of the British Empire, which is one of the honours that the Queen bestows on people who apparently have done good things. So uh, I was very I was very flattered to receive that. That was uh, 2004. It was for services rendered to 
literature and something else. I mean, I, it, it all sounded far important and grand than I really felt. If they'd said it was for my services to children's theatre, I would have approved of that because uh, children's theatre is one of those areas that has been very much the Cinderella of the theatre world for many, many years. And things are a bit better now. And uh, indeed, in America, uh, a lot of my plays, I'm delighted to say, have done quite a lot. I, I adapted eight Roald Dahl books, including The BFG and The Witches, Fantastic Mr. Fox. And they are done in uh, in, in the United States uh, quite a lot, I'm pleased to say. And I did come over to uh, New York a few years ago, a play of mine. It was an adaptation of a wonderful book called Tom's Midnight Garden, and that was on at the New Victory Theatre on 42nd Street, which is a wonderful theatre which is solely for young people. I've come over to quite a lot of um, conventions and conferences all about children's theatre in various places, Chicago, which I particularly enjoyed, and uh, even Albuquerque, I did a conference there once. And it's a far cry maybe from my acting career, but the, the, they do sort of tie up, I think, because I've always wanted to be an entertainer of, of some kind. And uh, and I did find that eventually that entertaining children was something I could do, and I, um, I get a, a real buzz from. What are you working on these days? Are you able to do anything, especially during this uh, pandemic time? Well, it, it has been a very strange time, hasn't it? I have a, a show which I wrote and uh, I direct as well. It's an adaptation of a children's picture book by Judith Carr, an extraordinary woman who died last year, age 94, I think. And it was a book written over 50 years ago called The Tiger Who Came to Tea. Funnily enough, Judith, who wrote and illustrated it, she and I met at Buckingham Palace <laughs> um, on the day when my play was going to be put on for the Queen's 80th birthday. And there was a, a reception for children's writers uh, in the palace, which uh, I was asked to sort of co-host because I was there with my play. And, uh, and Judith Carr, I didn't recognize, uh, although my daughters, both daughters, uh, when they were young, uh, The Tiger Who Came to See was their favorite book. So when she was pointed out to me, I immediately went up and almost went on one knee and said, you know, it's wonderful to meet you. And uh, it, and she took the wind out of my sails by saying, um, well, it's very nice to meet you too. My husband sends you his best regards. And I couldn't, I didn't know who her husband was. But she very kindly put me right. Um, her husband was uh, a writer, brilliant television writer called Nigel Neal. And Nigel Neal had written some, you know, years before, uh, the Quatermass series, and I don't know whether that had an impact in the United States, but Quatermass, it became a film, several films, I think, but it was originally a television serial, a sort of uh, sci-fi, early sci-fi thing, which went out live and was hugely, uh, sensationally popular over here. And by coincidence, about 30 or 40 years before this meeting uh, took place, I had been in one of Nigel Neal's television plays, as an actor, and he had come in to rehearsals, and we had met and talked, and amazingly, he had remembered, and he had linked up the fact that I was the same David Wood as, as the actor, as was also the children's writer, and he apparently had followed what I'd been doing. Eventually, Judith and I met. Sadly, he died before the meeting, but we met, and uh, she mentioned the fact that a producer was interested in turning her book 
the tiger who came to tea, into a children's play. And I said, well, if they want someone to have a go at it, I will. The result has been extraordinary because we've been doing it now for 12 years. It's been on the road virtually all that time. And uh, it's been in the West End playing a season either at Christmas or in the summer now eight or nine times. So going back to what you asked, which is what I've been doing in the pandemic, in March, Tiger was happily touring. They were up in the north of England in Huddersfield. And uh, suddenly our prime minister decided to tell everybody that they shouldn't go to the theatre anymore. And the whole thing came to a halt. And there hasn't been a performance obviously since. And we missed out on the tour, but also on our West End season at the wonderful Theatre Royal Haymarket, which is beautiful, beautiful theatre. And um, we're still waiting, hopefully, to be able to resume. That was a bit of a blow. But I had before been working on a new uh, show, and that is now ready and waiting to be produced, although I think now it's not going to be produced probably until 2022. It's a show for children or families, really, based on a wonderful book called Coming to England by Floella Benjamin. And Floella Benjamin came from Trinidad when she was 10 years old with her family and uh, experienced quite a lot of racism and difficulty, but survived and came through until now she is a baroness in the House of Lords uh, and hugely respected and um, pushes the arts um, and does all the right things uh, talking in Parliament. Uh, anyway, she and I were used to be on children's television <laughs> over 40 years ago, and we did several things together, and we've known each other all that time. And she one day said, would I think about adapting her book? And so that's what I've done. I've been reasonably busy, but it, it, it's it's unnerving, this pandemic, really, because although we're very lucky, we've got a, a nice home, and we've got a, a garden outside with grass and all the rest of it, and we are extremely fortunate, much more fortunate than some of the younger people. I mean, now, you know, I'm, I'm 76 years old now, and uh, I, I just feel incredibly lucky to have had my life and my chances, whereas I feel that a lot of the younger ones are just missing out and unable to uh, achieve what they might. But uh, Malcolm and I met up about 18 months ago, which was really wonderful. We hadn't met for a few years. And he was over in, in London. Uh, it was all to do with the anniversary of Clockwork Orange, actually. Uh, and he was doing a few personal appearances. And anyway, we agreed to meet. And, uh, and these two revolutionary schoolboys from 1968 uh, decided to have tea uh, at the Dorchester Hotel, <laughs> which one of the most expensive hotels in London. I think our, our image was rather taken away from us <laughs> as, as we sat there with our nice cream tea and our scones and our cakes and everything. No, it was lovely to see him. And of course, he has kept going incredibly well. I mean, he's had a, a, a great career. We've had very different lives, but uh, I feel that um, I was never as ambitious, I suppose, as an actor as he was. After we'd shot If, I went straight back into rep, what, what you probably call stock theatre, where I would be somewhere in the north doing a play in Manchester or wherever it might be. You know, went back to what I'd been doing before, and then television came along, and I did a lot of that. Meanwhile, Malcolm uh, refused to accept any work at all unless it was a major feature film. 
And he was almost starving. I mean, he had no money and he lived in this very small flat. I sometimes used to meet him and I think I used to pay for lunch because he couldn't afford it. Uh, But he was so determined that he was going to be a film star. And it paid off because although obviously months and months went by before the film it was released after we'd finished shooting because they had to edit it and there were all the problems of where it was going to go on and how it was going to be released. So months and months went by, but eventually he did get figures on the landscape opposite Robert Shaw. And strangely, uh, it was really quite spooky because in that film, he and Robert Shaw are handcuffed together. And uh, that's part of the thing. And of course, in If, Malcolm and I were handcuffed together as a sort of jokey thing when we pretended to escape from the supporting the rugby team school and we went out on our adventure eventually stealing the motorbike and I always thought that was extraordinary that this image of uh, Malcolm handcuffed to somebody (laughs) happened twice within but no it was it was great to meet up with him because sadly of course Richard Warwick our, our third musketeer he died some years ago and Christine Noonan who played the girl she has died and uh, Robert Swan, who played the head prefect, Roundtree, very splendid performance. He's gone. And, uh, and of course, I think all the older members of the cast uh, have, have now gone. So um, we're clinging on in there. <laughs> Mr. Wood, thank you so much for your time. I'm sorry, I asked for a half an hour and you gave me an hour. So I, I, I really appreciate your generosity with that. Not at all. No, it's a pleasure. No, I, I've... Uh, enjoyed it. I haven't hope I haven't spoken too much, but there we are. <laughs> poor people are poor people and they don't understand. A man's got to make whatever he wants and take it with his own hands. Poor people stay get to see someone's got to win in the human race if it isn't you then it has to be me so smile while you're making it laugh while you're taking it even though you're faking it nobody's gonna know nobody's gonna know Who's my man? Can you sniff him? That's your man. I'm giving you the Northeast. It's a big challenge. Do you think you're up to it? I know I am, sir. The entire population of India could be rehoused on the moon within ten years. It's only a matter of learning to live in a new way. <laughs> You're so greedy. Two million dollars compensation is our maximum. That's your decision, of course. But if you don't, things could be pretty upsetting for Kitty. Bye. 
fraud squad. Trust me. talking about the Mick Travis trilogy. Specifically, we were talking about Oh Lucky Man. And I do want to ask you guys the same question I asked before. Jonathan, when was the first time you saw Oh Lucky Man? Uh, well, I, I first saw it on videotape uh, after seeing If. I must admit that, again, it was a similar experience where I think the first viewing didn't really work as well for me. And I think the first time I saw it, I just found it very disorienting and it seemed a bit meandering and a bit too much like a series of comedy sketches i think that was uh you know partly my reaction to the fact that a lot of the actors i mean are so familiar from sitcoms and from tv comedy uh i think where it did start to grip me really was in the final scenes i think the scenes with the with the homeless and with the salvation army and i did begin to feel you know there is something very powerful about this and then again i had a similar kind of uh, enlightenment process where i saw it again and by this point i was living in canada and this may sound perverse but in a weird way it almost made me a little bit homesick for britain because i think that there is something so british about the uh, sensibility behind this and uh, i think what really what i really loved the, the second time i saw it was just some of that dialogue some of that very sort of humorous low-key bizarre dialogue that that, that that David Sherwin wrote. Yeah, I think the second time, I mean, it seems weird because in a way it is such a Brechtian film, but I, I really felt very kind of emotionally invested in it the second time. So again, you know, completely changed my opinion really the second time I saw it. And as I say, I think now it is my favorite one of, of the three really. How about you, Sam? It took me much longer to see Oh Lucky Man and Britannia Hospital. I think maybe at the time I watched If, they were just harder for me to get a hold of. So it was probably a couple years after that that I watched Oh Lucky Man, and it really was not what I was expecting. I guess I kind of assumed... So I would say with Anderson's films, and this is not true of the way I approach every new movie I'm going to watch, but I try to find out as little as possible. And so I think I assumed that it was just a direct sequel somehow to if like they were going to spin it so that the events were a fantasy. And now we have them, you know, Mick is a couple years older in college or something. And so when I saw it, I was like, what is happening? <laughs> but I love it. So I mean, I agree with everything Jonathan said, I just 
it's one of those movies that I think is really hard to sell people because it's hard to describe what exactly it's about. And it's very, very long. It doesn't feel, at least not to me, granted, you know, as we've talked about before, I like the six hour Jacques Rivette movies. So <laughs> I'm not a good judge. But because it's so episodic, and because Malcolm McDowell is so charismatic, and the direction is so perfect, it doesn't feel like like you just really get lost in the world and you get very emotionally connected to what's happening with him, even though he's such a quirky character. I don't know. I, I really love it. Again, first time watch for me on this one. And as I'm watching it, there was a moment where I had to pause and get up and like, you know, get more water or something. And I was just like, what the fuck? Three hours? There's no way this movie is three hours long. <laughs> I had no idea when I put it on. I wondered why the DVD set that I bought of this, and as far as I know, this isn't on Blu-ray anyplace. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but... I don't think so. I've got a two-disc set, and motherfucker, that second disc would not work. I had to go out and get another version of it, because I tried to put it in, and it just wouldn't read it. So I, I was sitting on the first half of the movie for a while, and then finally got to see the second half. And wow, I was really taken aback. I was very glad, though, Jonathan, when you and I were talking via chat on Facebook, because I kept getting little whiffs of Clockwork Orange through this movie. And I was just like, am I crazy for thinking no, this? you're not crazy at all. It's definitely there. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think there's, there's, uh, there are a few scenes that do seem very similar, aren't there? There's like the uh, the scene with the interrogation where he's suspected of being a spy, and you know he, he's in that kind of device in the chair, which I guess evokes the uh, you know the aversion therapy in Clockwork Orange. And then there's the scene I think towards the end with the uh, the homeless people, which I think really uh, evokes the second half of Clockwork Orange. I think, in fact, I think like a lot of that second half of Clockwork Orange is very similar, isn't it? And again. I think it's the fact that, I mean, both of them, they're picaresque narratives. So I think it might also have been the fact that, you know, I mean, they're, they're, I think, indebted to a similar kind of literary tradition. But I do think that there are some direct homages. I mean, I think, um, I think Malcolm McDowell said that, uh, you know, there are a few little sort of nods there because there is a character called Stanley, who is, um, I think, one of the assistants in the medical center and, uh, there's another character. I, in fact, I think it's the tycoon played by Ralph Richardson, and he's called James Burgess. So I think there are a few little sort of nods and winks there. I guess the fact that Malcolm McDowell was the one who originated it, I mean, might have something to do with that because, uh, um, I mean, it, it seems that he sort of started it off with his, you know, his own sort of story about his experiences as a coffee salesman. But I mean, it does seem that he was involved later too. So he may have drawn on his experiences of Clockwork Orange um, for this. I was also reminded of the Coca-Cola kid and just him talking about Coca-Cola. I love his little monologue about Coca-Cola. It kind of reminded me of them talking about coffee and just that it is this thing. And it doesn't dawn on an American watching this, Jonathan, that coffee 
sales selling coffee in Britain is probably a lot tougher than selling coffee in the United States. I think there was a finally there was a, a moment when Malcolm McDowell in something, maybe it was on the commentary, was just like, of course it's impossible to sell coffee in, in Britain to people that just drink tea. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. That is a, a really horrible task. Okay, I get it now. Uh, yeah, even even to me, that's a little bit alien now. Yeah, because uh, but that definitely, I think, definitely would have been true at that time. Yeah, that coffee, especially in the north of England too, which is where this is uh, starting out. I guess yes, you know, you, you've got your hardened tea drinkers. So yeah, I think uh, even the Ruckles drank tea. So I mean. <laughs> <laughs> The other thing I was reminded of a little bit was Apocalypse Now, or really Heart of Darkness, this whole thing of him being sent up the river (laughs) to where Oswald used to be. And I kept thinking, like, are we ever going to find out what happened to Oswald? Are we going to find, like, a skeleton somewhere or something? Or, like, him ruling over, like, a a group in northern England or something? I don't know. But we should talk, too, about the way that this movie is structured. You know, it is, again, we're going back to very episodic stuff you you mentioned that but also we have a uh, a narrator kind of in this by having alan price performing songs throughout it and then i love the moment when alan price actually comes into the movie because most of it at the time he's in a studio with his band recording songs and maybe they have something to do with what's going on most of the time that they do and then when he just suddenly shows up in the movie it's like oh okay we've just crossed this weird line it's not necessarily as surrealistic as the chaplain sitting up from the uh, drawer in in the headmaster's office, but there definitely is that moment where I'm just like, oh, we're we're going to go there now. This is very interesting. Yeah, I, I love his presence as well in the movie. And again, I, I guess it's a Brechtian device, isn't it? That he's like the, uh, I think he's been compared to the street singer in the Threepenny Opera in that he is kind of like out, he's outside the narrative, but as you say, also sort of moved inside it as well. And uh from some of the things I've read, I mean, I think the the, the interpretation um, of him is that he is kind of, in a way, almost like a, a counterpart to Travis in that where Travis is this naive figure who is sort of, you know, yet to experience, you know, the ways of the world. Price represents somebody who is a bit more worldly wise and he's kind of seen everything and he can kind of look back on everything with this very ironic perspective and uh, i love his presence in the movie as a character too because i think again he reflects that same sense of you know this rather cynical wisdom and uh, he has some great lines as well doesn't he i think and uh, i think it's telling to me as well the way he appears at that point and the way that pop group appears because i think that's at the point where mick is going to the the south where he's moving north to south and i mean that whole narrative of course that whole trajectory of north to south i mean that's really i guess what the experience was for you know i guess that generation of singers and artists who were you know sort of from northern working class backgrounds and i mean going going south was really the the success story and um i think you know you have that sort of early part of the movie which is almost a bit like a kitchen sink type of melia isn't it with the uh, the factory and with the boarding house and it's almost like the movie is sort of shifting into a, a different kind of world really when the pop group appears so to me that's a very kind of nicely placed element i think the way that the pop group appears at that point when he's on the way to london that's definitely another thing that made me think a little bit of revet though how he sometimes like i think he does this in merry-go-round maybe where he sometimes has these like 
musical interludes that don't have to do with anything that's happening. But here, it definitely feels a lot more grounded because he does wind up meeting up with the musicians. And of course, there's that wonderful Helen Mirren character. But something that I just wanted to say before we move too far from it, I love how especially in the opening when he's selling coffee. And I have to wonder if this is something that Malcolm McDowell like must have experienced personally, but he has all of these kind of scenes early in the movie that kind of continue throughout where women, particularly older women are hitting on him and making eyes at him. And you get the sense that he's aware of that. And might be a little ambivalent about it, but like uses it because it's a way to get ahead. And I don't think you see that very often in movies where it's like a male character is defined by his attractiveness to the opposite sex. Like usually it's a young woman. So I I just thought it was really interesting the way both Malcolm McDowell and Lindsay Anderson use that in this film and how it kind of connects to some of the gay themes and if and sort of like latent gay themes in the whole trilogy. He's definitely very attractive to the opposite sex. I did not expect during the coffee tasting scene that it was going to go that way. <laughs> the other thing I didn't mention is, uh, you know, you talked about the the journey from north to south and we've got these title cards that are throughout this thing as well, which I also uh, always appreciate a good title card and just that it is kind of charting his journey as he is going along because yeah like you said it starts off kind of normal he's working in this factory he's getting trained with these other guys i love this white hat and the white coat that he's wearing and just all of these things going on with this and then getting sent on this other guy's route and then it just goes fucking crazy at one point and i can't even pinpoint when that is it just starts to get wilder and wilder and wilder and i don't know if the wildest part of this movie for me might be the hospital stuff, which then plays into Britannia hospital, especially because we've got the same doctor, the sheep. That was it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's so good. And so unexpected. It's just so horrific too. (laughs) Yeah. I, I I think the first sort of sign of, of, of a sort of a slightly more bizarre element is the sex club as well. I think that's kind of, for me, where it starts to go beyond just kind of standard realism, but I guess could be, you know, could be a realistic thing. And I feel the movie also gets darker as well as it goes on. So I think, you know, that's maybe something I didn't appreciate the first time I saw it, where it felt really not very structured. But now when I look at it, I feel that there are kind of two halves. And uh, it's almost like what you're seeing in that first half is kind of setting up what happens in the second half, because, when you take, for instance, like the sex club, you know, you see like all the various representatives of local authority. They're all kind of like hand in glove with each other, aren't they? Like the policeman, the mayor, um, you know, I guess the coffee uh, company. And in a way, it almost reflects what, what you see later. It anticipates what you see later when you get the businessmen with the politicians and the African dictator. And it's almost like he's setting up, you know, the, the, these kind of more... I guess more sort of sinister realities that you see later on, but uh, but yeah, I think that that hospital sequence as well is is really uh, is really just so striking, isn't it? 
But it's almost like I think that, although it is dark, it's almost because it's so surreal, it, it's almost like it just sort of flashes past you. And I think, again, it sort of sets up, I think, those kind of like longer sequences of despair or of kind of like horrible things in the in the second half. So I, I think although it is horrible, it's too brief to really register somehow. I, I, I actually often when I when I kind of rewatch it, I kind of almost forget that that part is there, really. And it almost it always shocks me every time, really. And it has that those really great like stunts where he throws himself out a window and so it's like it goes from being really horrifying it's it's like there's this kind of mounting level of anxiety when he's in the hospital and maybe that's just because hospitals creep me out you know even though i work in one but it's like it quickly takes a turn into this like sci-fi horror movie and then he throws himself out the window and gets into a van with a band and it's just like you process so many emotions in such a short amount of time is dizzying but it is so perfect I love the way he's also trying to trying to negotiate with Dr. Miller and he think he's really happy that he's managed to get 150 pounds out of him and it's just that kind of myopia isn't it about you know focusing on you know his his uh, negotiating skills you know not not kind of having any inkling of what is actually going to happen to him really if i think about it the moment where things kind of take a turn in the movie is when he puts on that gold suit and i know that that was based on something that really happened to mcdowell in real life but yet the gold suit and his journey and finding his way onto what is that an army base and they interrogate him, torture him. Then there's something that happens and men are running around like crazy he escapes. And it just, it's one thing after another, after another. And there are very few times in the first half of the uh, half of the movie that even allow you to breathe because it is just one thing after another, after another, it is, it's just wild. And I was floored again, watching this for the first la- first time. I was just like, where is this going? Like, I had no idea, especially, you know, tell me watching it in the first 10 minutes that you're going to be able to predict anything that's going to happen after that. You can't because it just takes these wild turns, but yet it all feels like it's earned. Like none of this stuff feels like, oh, well, when he finds the guy who's got a, his human head grafted onto a sheep body, <laughs> that's just too much for me. I can't take that. I checked out of the movie. No, it all works. That point might be why it doesn't feel three hours. It's relentless, but it's not fast paced in a way that feels rushed or like, you know, if you watch action blockbusters, a lot of the time it feels like they're just like sprinting through this plot to get to other explosion scenes. But here, I think maybe that's why it resonates with me so much emotionally is it's like it does jump from all of these different completely unexpected adventures, but at the same time, you're with Mick every step of the way. Like, I, I don't know how else to explain. This movie is so hard to talk about. <laughs> I think the songs help with that as well, don't they? I think the songs do give you something of a breathing space or it's, a, it's like a moment to reflect, isn't it? Which I guess is very Brechtian, isn't it? The idea that, you know, you need this space in which to critically take in or to reflect on what you've seen. So I almost feel like this, without the songs, I think this might be a lot harder, I think, to, to take in. Oh, totally. And there are also, and this is something that I think I focused more this time around, is there are, at least in the first, I, I maybe actually, maybe they're throughout, but there are a lot of these 
really unexpectedly beautiful scenes of him just like traipsing through the countryside that I think also give you a minute alone with him and a minute to slow things down that I think really helps with the pacing. I really appreciated uh, watching it again, the uh, yeah, the landscapes, and uh, you get that sequence uh, of the sort of nuclear explosion, which I guess almost gives you this kind of post-apocalyptic vibe, and then you get these beautiful sort of verdant landscapes, and I think it's playing a lot with that symbolism, isn't it, of death and rebirth, and so uh, there's a lot of sort of symbolism woven in there as well, really, which I think does give you some kind of point of orientation where I think it doesn't just feel purely arbitrary. So I think the way that, for instance, that scene with the church comes in after the nuclear explosion, it does have a certain kind of symbolic logic to it. So I think there is a there is a kind of structure somehow guiding it. We talked a little bit about A Clockwork Orange, and the other thing that I don't want to say it took me out of the movie, but I was just very happy to see it, was Philip Stone was one of the two people that interrogates him. And of course, whenever I see him, I think of Mr. Grady, the caretaker from uh, The Shining. So I was like, oh, okay. Like, uh, I was like, he's back from the dead again. Here he is to torture uh, torture little Alex. <laughs> and, and I think Dim is in it as well, isn't he, Warren Clark? <laughs> I totally agree with you that it feels like sort of a nod to Clockwork Orange, but in a way that's not obvious or it doesn't feel repetitive. Like it feels like a totally different thing that's happening. But can we talk for a minute about the blackface? I was just about to say this movie's canceled. Yeah, <laughs> totally canceled. The first movie is canceled too, but I, I think they're all canceled for different reasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll talk about the drag queen in the third one. <laughs> I'm a little person. <laughs> yeah, the, the the blackface on Arthur Lowe. At first, I was getting ready to be a little offended, but at the same time, I was just like. This is really speaking to colonialism and this whole idea of what I can only assume is this British-educated African dictator who is buddy-buddy with this other Ralph Richardson character, uh, Sir James Burgess, as you mentioned. And I was like, okay, I guess it actually kind of makes narrative sense to take a white guy and put him in blackface because it's almost like they have taken certain people from Africa and anglicized them so much that they might as well just be a white person in blackface. I know that sounds a little offensive, but that's the way that I feel watching this. And to hear him talk about just all of these awful things, like how he almost hanged his brother, how they're going to use this chemical called honey to kill all of these people and you've got this German guy running this slideshow and I'm just like, okay, I think he's a leftover from World War II and uh, he's just he's so happy is. about this. The honey that he's trying to acquire, uh, it just, but I think that is maybe for me, one of the main kind of political differences between If and the second two films is there's all this really kind of scathing stuff about British colonialism and the British attempts to remain relevant when they're no longer an imperial world power. And you, I mean, you've got a ton, I'm sure we'll talk about this more in a little bit when we get to Britannia Hospital, but 
all of that stuff, I think, is really intentional. And I totally agree with you. He wasn't using blackface to be offensive. He was using it to make a point. And I think if you don't know a lot about Lindsay Anderson's life, I mean, he's somebody who was born in India and traveled around serving in World War II. And I think he spent a lot of time thinking about the effects of imperialism and colonialism, which is also partly why I think this trilogy could resonate with a lot of people now who are thinking about those legacies in things like, you know, US politics and and stuff like that. Colonialism is a sort of a running theme, isn't it, as well, because you have imperial coffee. And I think there is that reference at one point to the fact that they're taking this coffee from Nigeria and then selling it back to the Nigerians. So it's both, you know, it's both, you know, exploitation of the country's resources and then also, you know, it's commerce as well. And it's like it's exploitation in two different directions. And then you have that sort of silent film pastiche that sets the film up where you have that white judge. And it's almost like Dr. Munda, even though he is actually African, he's just like another version of that white figure. And I think the fact that it's played by Arthur Lowe, who, I mean, you see in other guises as an authority figure, I think it's just that idea that, you know, authority, you know, to quote the song, everything changes faces, but it sort of stays the same. So, I mean, it's just like another variant, even though he's African, he's just another variant of one of the other characters that you've seen. Anderson is trying to suggest that he's not really African. He's just another one of these kind of rotating faces who were basically all the same corrupt person. I mean, I didn't mention that in If, it, there was a very big deal. I read about this in um, Wood's book. Very purposefully, they had the um, red, white, and blue kind of a Union Jack on their school ties. And so it was just like, hey, this school is representing England. And when you come to Oh, Lucky Man, there are a lot of things that are representing England. And of course, Britannia Hospital, it's right there in the name. So it's like, we are constantly taking shots at the powers that be and just saying this is all fucked up and you really need to pay attention to it. I was also kind of happy that the fictional country that he is a head of is Zinagara. And I had to go and look up Zinagara or Zingara and find out that it was a, uh, a fictional land in one of Robert E. Howard's um, Conan books. So talk about, uh, we were talking about racism and I thought that that fit in pretty well since uh, Robert E. Howard was uh, accused a lot of being racist. That's something that I had no idea until I learned it from you. I mean, it could just be a coincidence. Um, it might have been just slightly different spelling, and there was also nothing about that in Sherwin's book. So I could just be pulling that right out of my ass. I wouldn't be surprised because I feel like he weaves in so many literary references like into things, but it's also really hard to picture Lindsay Anderson like sitting around reading Conan comics. <laughs> I just like I can't, that's you know what? That's what's in the binder at the end of Oh Lucky Man. Those are Conan comics. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, I feel that one of the problems that British critics tended to have with his films is that I think that they do kind of pitch themselves in a way that's both kind of like highbrow and lowbrow. So I think the way that they do kind of work in pastiches or sort of homages to, I guess, what would have been seen as lowbrow kinds of entertainment, I think was one of the things that 
it or does tend to confuse critics, I think, especially in Britain, who tend to like that kind of clearer division between, you know, this is highbrow, this is respectable, this is not. I mean, uh, you take, like, say, the Carry On films. I mean, it's interesting that the, the Time Out film guide, which was, I, I, I think, was um, quite a prominent sort of publication in the 60s and 70s and 80s. I mean, they mentioned the Carry On films, both in relation to Oh Lucky Man and Britannia Hospital, and both times, you know, as a way to sort of attack the films, you know, both in both cases as a sort of a critical reference. But I almost feel that that's not... I mean, I don't, I don't think of that as, as a, a drawback, really. I think that the films, I mean, they are working, I think, with, you know, sort of conventions of popular culture and of, you know, lowbrow comedy with farce, for instance. And I don't think they're, they're you know, apolog- I don't think there's any need to be apologetic about that, really. I think that, uh, you know, so I, I think, you know, a lot of these sort of cultural reference points, I think, are really part of what he was trying to do. The scene of him and Helen Mirren on the rooftop, apparently that was the toughest scene for Sherwin to write, which is odd to me. And it's such a great scene. I love this whole thing of him getting up in the morning, meeting the band. You know, again, he's actually interacting with Alan Price in the band and then going up and seeing her and the interactions with her and this whole idea of this building that is just looming over everything and her talking about how much money her father makes and, you know, finding out that she's the daughter of this rich industrialist. And then that, oh my God, Sir Ralph Richardson is just such a bastard as Burgess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's terrifying, yeah. Oh, <laughs> especially when he sets, uh, you know, he doesn't necessarily set up Mick to fall, but Mick takes a fall and... Oh, Ralph Richardson is just up. yeah. Well, and Ralph Richardson totally is just like, don't worry about it. We'll we'll help you out, buddy. No problem. Oh, does that throwaway line on the telephone isn't there in the car where he says, you know, I, otherwise things will be a little unpleasant for Kitty. And it's just you know you don't really know what the context is, but it's just something so chilling about the casualness of the way he says that. I love that line so much, and I I think Helen Mirren's character is so perfect because. I feel like we still have those kind of entitled hipster trust fund kids who have this sort of attitude of, I'm just going to wander around and make art. And her, she has this one line that I love so much where she basically tells him that he's like old fashioned and conservative because he cares about money (laughs) and he cares about making money. And her, her, her response to him is something like, if you want something, you just go out and take it. <laughs> it's like, well, thank you, Trump child or grandchild. I love the fact the father's just really not that concerned about her either. He says, I'm just so frightfully busy. <laughs> and he asks, he asks, are you a psychiatrist? Is his first, <laughs> like his first <laughs> question. When he gets out of jail after taking this fall, he just is so beatific it is like he took that the ludovico treatment and he's just so you know happy about things and hanging out with the salvation army band and trying to talk the woman out of committing suicide that part is so funny though apparently you couldn't see that for a lot of years like they cut out an entire reel of film like i think it was reel nine was just taken out when they had to uh, make the movie shorter well, and I, I also love that moment where Peter Jeffrey comes back yet again as the prison warden who, like, gives him a book of philosophy and tells him that 
I don't, I, I can't figure out if he's trying to hit on him or what's going on, but he tells him he has eyes just like Steve McQueen and then kisses him. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, be- I believe that was a, a remark by Pauline Kale, I think, in a review of If, and they just took it straight from that. And I think oh Malcolm McDowell just looked, I think he felt so happy about that, that comparison. So I think they just put it in the script for, her, for him, really. <laughs> That's hilarious. I had no idea. <laughs> But in the strangest, the strangest character to give it to, though, isn't it? Really, it's yes. <laughs> like they could have given it to any one of the female characters that openly hit on him, or that he kisses or has sex with. But no, it's the prison warden. It's a very Lindsay Anderson. I love that when he gets out of prison, he's getting out of prison with the same characters slash actors yes. question mark that yes, all were the in this, all in that coffee class. <laughs> Including poor Biles, who's always kind of like on the receiving end of everything. So (laughs) it makes sense that he's there. He's probably had his head shoved down the toilet in prison as well. Probably. I mean, (laughs) it's a shame we didn't get to see that sequence. But I also I love that his little desk with all of the books in prison is kind of reminiscent of their desks in If. Well, I love that uh, to jump to the end a little bit. I love that when he ends up being in the movie, a lucky man <laughs> or trying out for it, <laughs> that they give him a machine gun and like all kinds of school books. So I'm just like, okay, that's definitely a nod to if right there. I can't imagine this ending a better way. Like it, although it's weird because so for anyone who hasn't seen it, like Mike said, he stumbles. He, you know, he's been through all of these ordeals. He's been assaulted and he sort of like stumbles into this casting call for the movie, Oh Lucky Man, where Lindsay Anderson is an actor playing himself, basically. And it's it like, then it just becomes a big cast party. So it, it like, in a weird way, it feels like this should be the last film of Lindsay Anderson's career or should maybe be the last film in the trilogy or something, because it has this like weird celebratory note of, I I don't even know. It just, I, I love it. And I was saying before we started recording that I forgot that the, basically the first thing to happen once the sort of film itself ends and they go into the kind of meta party ending is Lindsay Anderson walks forward and gives Malcolm McDowell the biggest hug. And it just like, it makes you tear up a little bit. Is that before or after he belts him about the head with the script? After. Okay. <laughs> after. <laughs> I mean, just that whole smile. Now smile. I beg your pardon? Smile. Why? Just do it. I'm afraid I can't smile without a reason. Smile. What's that to smile about? Just do it. Why? Don't ask why. What's that to smile about? And just that back and forth between the actor and the director. It, it, it's just, it's wonderful. What is there to smile about? It's ambiguous, isn't it? The, 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 that instruction to smile. Uh, I believe that the intention was that it was like this, this Zen moment, that it was, that it was meant to reflect this moment of realization that, you know, happiness depends on how you look at things. So, you know, if you look at things in a happy way, you know, you will smile. But to me, it, I think the way that Anderson, uh, performs it. I mean, I, I believe that he was a little bit nervous about, 
doing it. And apparently he comes across as a little bit more domineering than he wanted to be. I think he wanted to seem a bit more like a benign figure. And <laughs> He's so, not I mean, benign at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you could take it that he's just going to be another of the many sort of tormentors that Travis has had. And yeah, I think the actual smile itself is ambiguous too, though, isn't it? Because, I mean, it, it, I've watched it a few times and, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, is that a smile? Is it like, a, you know, a half smile? You know, what is that expression that you're getting at the end? I mean, I guess that it, it is meant to reflect some kind of understanding. But of course, you know, you don't know what the understanding is. But there is some kind of watershed moment, I think, that's clearly happening for him, isn't there, at that point? Yeah, my assumption, honestly, is not the more positive one that you just explained. But my assumption about the ending is that he he keeps asking, like, why should I smile? What is there to smile about? And I think like the way I read it is he comes to the realization that there's nothing to smile about. You just smile because that's what you're being told to do. And that's what everyone does. So I guess my interpretation is a little more nihilistic, (laughs) a little more cynical. I buy that. Uh, And it comes full circle, of course, doesn't it? Because at the beginning, you know, as salesmen, they're told to smile and that if they basically, if they, I can't remember the quote, but there's a William Blake quote, isn't there? Yes. If, If you believe it, it will become real. Yeah, so you can smile your way into believing it, I guess. And, and uh, it's also the line in the song, isn't it? Smile while you're, what is it? Smile while you're taking it, even if you're faking it. And it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty, the whole thing is pretty damn cynical. Probably why I love it. And I guess it's that cynicism that le- lets you off the hook, isn't it? And it's like, well, now we can enjoy ourselves. We've no illusions left. You know, we can just take this worldly wise stance. And, you know, there's something liberating about losing all of your illusions. Definitely. All right. So maybe you just put a positive twist on the cynicism. (laughs) But I do think that that also, not to keep hammering this home, but I feel like that perspective, which I'm sure it seems very on brand for Lindsay Anderson, is also very Brechtian, is this idea that in order to be totally free or totally liberated, you have to be fully aware of the society that you're living in and ways in which you're complicit in this system. Like you can't break out of it unless you're fully cognizant of it. Yeah, I mean, that relates to the epigraph at the beginning of If, doesn't it, which is about getting wisdom and understanding. And you could say that that is a theme all through the three films, isn't it? And and that is the crucial thing. That is the thing that will genuinely liberate you is getting wisdom about your circumstances and about the rest of the world definitely it's also very kind of existentialist (laughs) this hospital is run on a hundred and twenty five million pounds of your money every year whatever is happening in britannia hospital what are you going to hear there? One geriatric, hypothermia. No admissions except by union dispensations. This could be a major confrontation. Stick close to me, lad. This is not what was ordered. I'm afraid His Excellency's mango slices have been delayed. This is the best we can do. Intensive here, Ken. Looks like a Kroger. Okay, pass him through. What do you want here? I couldn't care less. I've been off duty for the past ten minutes. What a light. <laughs> Come in, Sammy. Come in, Red. Are you receiving me? Come on. Let's make movies. Hey, come back! 
Groovies! You'll only be paid for an eight-hour day, Mr. Potter. You'll have to be out of here by ten at the latest. They're refusing to admit the royal luncheons. We have a royal occasion here today, you know. They're picketing the Fortnum's van. I didn't have 50 years in India to end up bedding down with a lot of wogs. Oh! This isn't a Nairobi, Hilton. Where the hell have you been? This is a British hospital! <laughs> Travers under something big, one of his exclusives. <laughs> <laughs> today, the human experiment. Let's learn two steps slow. Tomorrow. Liver and life training, six seconds. Genesis. Remember the Battle of Britain. Remember the Peasants' Revolt. We're all on the same side, then. Not in a class war, we're not. Not in the inevitable march of socialism. Potter. Superintendent, can you guarantee the safety of HRH? Honor to me, She's as safe here as in Windsor Castle. They've been provoked beyond endurance. This is disgraceful. Each hallage must be protected. This is no good. Get her inside now. Lucky Man was 1973, and it would take a lot of years before David Sherwin and Lindsay Anderson would work again together. Same thing with uh, Malcolm McDowell. And it wasn't until 1982 that Britannia Hospital came out. And I have to say, I was not familiar with Britannia Hospital at all, which is kind of remarkable looking at the cast of it. When I was a kid, I would go out and I would hunt down movies because I was such a huge Star Wars fan, I would hunt down movies that Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, and Harrison Ford were in. And I was just like, ooh, I, I need this. So somehow I managed to see Heroes, where I think Henry Winkler is a worm farmer. I managed to see, you know, Force 10 from Navarone. I managed to see Corvette Summer. But I never saw Britannia Hospital, and Mark Hamill is in this. It's a tiny role, but he's in this movie. And he's high as fuck. He is high as fuck. <laughs> throughout almost the entire thing. What a strange film. Jonathan, when did you first see this one? I saw this again when I was in Canada. Uh, So this is in about 2013, I think. And uh, yeah, I saw them in order. So yeah, I guess this is the last one I saw. And uh, I mean, I I felt as I still feel now, it's probably my least favorite of the three. But I mean, uh, since the other two are two of my favorite films, I mean, it's that's not to say that I I dislike it in any way. Uh, I think that I think the first takeaway for me when I first saw it was just Graham Crowden. I just think that, that the escalation of his character or the elevation of him as an actor, I think, is is so wonderful because I think he's one of those actors who, I guess, I mean, he, at least in the UK, I mean, he was a sort of one of those stalwart British actors that you would see in many TV shows and things. But I guess was somebody who is kind of like too eccentric to kind of ever have been like a, you know, really a, a big star. I mean, he was, he was, a, he was a star in a sitcom called Waiting for God, which I remember in the nineties, but 
otherwise you know he, he was usually like a, a supporting actor and so I I really love the way that his character becomes so dominant and really kind of has the uh I guess second to last word in this, I guess the brain has the last word, but I mean, uh, he's almost like the mouthpiece of Anderson himself, I think, isn't he, in that final diatribe? So, yeah, I think I think that was the thing that I most was impressed by when I saw it. And But again, I think the more I've seen it, the more I've kind of become enamoured of the, um, just. I think just the way it's structured, really. I think the first time I saw it, it felt a little bit static, I think, compared to the first two. But now, now I watch it again, I can feel, you know, the way it's built up. I think it's it's pretty skillful in that, you know, you do get a lot of like static scenes early on, early, early on but it, it's kind of building to this, you know, this kind of outbreak of, you know, rioting and, and violence. And I think there is something very kind of skillfully handled about that. So, uh, yeah, again, I think I've appreciated it more the more I've watched it. I am just so glad, Sam, that you did the commentary for the Kino Lorber disc on this, but yet you deigned to share your wisdom <laughs> with the rest of us mere mortals about this film. Sam, when did you first see this one? Um, I feel like first we need to address what you're referring to there. Well, some people will not go on podcasts and talk about movies they've done commentaries for. Yeah, which is the most insane thing I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but... I, much like Jonathan, saw this, I want to say probably seven or eight years ago, and it was also the last in the trilogy that I saw. I saw it a couple of years after Oh Lucky Man, and I think maybe I just needed a minute to process Oh Lucky Man. This movie is so insane. I mean, it's like sort of a political, it's very much a political satire that I think is very overtly leftist and anti-colonialism and anti-British government and anti-administration. And it's like against any form of authority whatsoever using the hospital kind of as a microcosm. But it also is a Frankenstein movie and like Cronenberg body horror and there's a giant brain at the end <laughs> it's, i mean this is a movie that truly has everything like if you as and as you said it has mark hamill who is sort of so if you, this is another one that like oh lucky man is extremely hard to explain but it's the premise is basically that mick travis who does not have a major role, but is it like, there's really no protagonist, I guess. He's an investigative reporter who's trying to do a story on the practices going on at this hospital, which I think everyone sort of knows is corrupt. And Mark Hamill is working with him, but he just spends all of his scenes in the news van getting high, which is, which is incredible. But so it's sort of like for part of it, you follow Mick as he starts to uncover more things and get some evidence for his story. But then much like Oh Lucky Man, it's like he gets swept into yet another mad doctor experimenting on people kind of plot. And there is one of the best 
Frankenstein sequences ever with like naked Malcolm McDowell. Yeah, I, I always forget how kind of gruesome and brilliant that sequence is as well. I mean, I think the effects look pretty good, don't they? You know, you do get that sort of c- convincing impression that he's just been stitched together and, you know, the skin tones are all different and, uh, you know, the scene with the head coming off. I mean, it's incredibly... You know, it's incredibly effective, isn't it, really? Uh, yeah, I, I always sort of, uh, it always takes me by surprise, I think, whenever I see that. It's so unexpected. I mean, especially if, even if you're somebody who is crazy enough to want to watch all three films in a row, at, like for the first time. Like me. <laughs> yes, like, like everyone here. <laughs> but even if you somehow have made it to Britannia Hospital and you think, okay, I just saw a lucky man. I know what to expect. You indeed do not know what to expect. One of the things that, that does make this so special and so bizarre is just the way it throws everything in, doesn't it? And I think that, uh, I think this was really the, the, the one of the three films that was most critically uh, sort of condemned. I mean, especially in, in England, I think it had a, a better I think it had a better reception in America and I think also in, in Europe, but I think in England at the time it was really just critically destroyed. And uh, I think partly that's because of the fact that it's just doing so many different things. And I think, as you say, it has this kind of like horror element. It has this, uh, I guess, uh, you know, farcical or sort of like low humor to it. Uh, you have people like Robin Asquith in the movie from the Confessions films. And I mean, it's just throwing in these kind of, you know, comic elements. And I think also in terms of the the politics too, I think that, again, it just sort of throws in everything. It's just taking shots at everything. And it really just upset everybody because I, I think the, I guess the context when it came out was the Falklands War, which I think was at its height when the movie was released in 82. So I guess, you know, the fact that it's really taking aim at the uh, upper classes, at the sort of the, the, uh, you know, both the administrators of the hospital and then the representatives of the royal family, I guess that wasn't welcome. The way it represents Britain is this very decrepit hospital. I mean, I guess, again, wasn't welcome. But then it also sort of skewers the, you know, the unions and the revolutionary figures too. So it's this kind of panoramic attack on everybody. So I guess it didn't really give comfort to any particular quarter. Whereas I think, you know, if you think of like British filmmaking, I mean, usually political cinema is represented by people like Ken Loach, say, who has a very definite kind of uh, political stance where, you know, he's, he's kind of like on the side of, some of his characters, he has a clear target, but this just goes for everybody. I mean, the politics, I think, are interesting because, I mean, for me, although this is made in the time of Margaret Thatcher, I almost feel it's a bit more like a a vision that's kind of mired in the 70s, I think, and in that context of industrial strife, really, because I think the story that inspired it was from 1974, and then I think they initiated production in I think about 79 something like that I think they, they got the deal for it and uh, I think that does deserve a bit of explaining because I mean I think when you look at it now I think some of that stuff can seem a little bit suspect like the way it, it, it kind of like attacks the unions but I think that relates to that specific context of the 70s where I mean for whatever reason there, there were a lot of strikes there was a lot of industrial unrest and um, this is kind of like before Margaret Thatcher really sort of destroyed the union's power so i think that uh, it does belong as much to the 70s i think in its in its satire as, as to the 80s and again probably it was just a little bit out of step with the era that it was released in 
Jonathan, I don't like this. I don't like that Thatcher and Reagan were doing the same things in both of our countries, and now you've got that, uh, not you, but, you know, we've got fucking Boris Johnson and then Trump. I mean, it's just like, what What the fuck? I can't, if I wanted to, I couldn't run away to England and escape the troubles because it always feels like whatever shit we're doing, you guys are doing the same thing. Uh, yeah, but Boris Johnson can at least speak in complete sentences. That is true. I mean, somebody might write them for him, but at least he can read them. <laughs> <laughs> and to your point earlier about the difference between Lindsay Anderson's cinema and Ken Loach, I could not agree with that more. And it's also like why I much prefer Anderson, because this is basically a much larger version of what happens in If, where it's not just we're going to attack the people who are bad. It's everyone is bad. Everyone must go. But it's on such a big scale here. And this one, in a way, might be the funniest one. I mean, you have some of these hilarious sequences where they're trying to get the queen in and out of the hospital and like they hide her in a coffin. <laughs> <laughs> but it it is very, I think, something that if like Britannia Hospital is one of those films that I really like. And I think we talked about this type of cinema on our Jacques Rivette episode, but it's like, there are certain films I love and that I have a lot to say about and that make me think about a lot of things, but they're really hard to recommend to people. And this is definitely one of those, but the way that it attacks class systems could appeal to a lot of people watching movies today who are very frustrated about what's about the parallels between now and Thatcher era. Yes. And I, I think the critique that's made, I guess it's not so much of like the working class itself. I think it's more focused on those union representatives, isn't it? Like the Robin Asquith character who, I mean, he's completely venal, just wants to get a knighthood and he's happy to, you know, to, to, to participate in the Royal event if he will get something out of it. So I think it's as much about, you know, that kind of power as much as it's about, you know, representing a particular class or critiquing a particular class. I think it's just any representative of power of whatever form I think that he he's attacking. And uh, yeah, I, I think you can see it in those timeless terms, really, that it is about human stupidity and, you know, susceptibility to corruption as much as it's about specific institutions or specific figures. And I think it also, he, he really had a lot of vitriol for this idea of political compromise, like making some sort of deal to get part of what you want is in any way moral or in any way aligns with like decent political values. That's something I feel like he attacks in all three films is like this idea of trading your values for power is sort of the ultimate sin. Although, as we know from the end of Oh Lucky Man, he does not believe in sin. At least Mick Travis does not. But yeah, I think that certainly reflects Anderson's approach as a filmmaker, doesn't it? As an, as, and as an artist and as a public figure, I think in that he, you know, he didn't mince his words. He didn't make any compromises. And I think that part of the, I think part of the reason why I think these films were received, especially Britannia Hospital, it was received in such a hostile way, I think was because of the fact that, you know, he didn't really, I, he didn't really care, I think, about making enemies in the film industry. So I guess, you know, he, he was all about, he was, he was all about, you know, not compromising, I think, in his own, 
attitude, really. He really lived it, I think, as much as he put it in his work. The place that it went over the best was in France. And they were like, wow, this is this is something. The longer I do any kind of work as a film critic or, or writing about film, the more I hate mainstream critics because it's like they just they're given so many gems and they're like, what is this garbage? And that's definitely the case with Oh Lucky Man and especially Britannia Hospital. People were just like frothing at the mouth. They hated it so much. The strange thing here, I think, was that I think one of the critics who did really love it was Vincent Camby, of all people. Which is so, baffling. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and similarly, I think with Oh Lucky Man, I believe Leonard Maltin gives it four stars in his film guide, which again is not something you would expect really and yet there are critics who you might think would like it like i say like say the time out film guide the time out review which was quite a uh, you know saw itself as quite a hit publication i mean they just tore into into them the first time i saw this i didn't know what to think <laughs> it was just so different and well the the very first time i watched it i really didn't know what to think because this one before it was put out by kino lorber in the u.s and indicator over in the uk there was no real way to get this i ended up buying a copy that was imported from some place where they speak spanish thinking that there would be an english track on this i almost said english channel that would have been a little bit of a joke um only to find out that there was no English whatsoever, no English subtitles, no English language track. I could watch it with many different subtitles on there, but they were like Brazilian, Portuguese, Portuguese, uh, Spanish. <laughs> All of these How things. did Malcolm McDowell sound in Spanish? Uh, you know, <laughs> I didn't even make it to his part. I was mostly watching the beginning with Robbie Coltrane. And as soon as he spoke, I was just like, okay, yeah, this isn't happening here. The menu kept playing. I was I was giving platelets, so I, ha- I didn't have access to uh, the remote right away. And the 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 menu kept playing over and over again, and was playing the Britannia theme, and then had Mick and the other guy on the roof as like the background video that was going over and over again. So I was just like, okay, yeah, mi- mix in this movie. This will be great. And it takes so long for him to show up. And then when he shows up, he's barely in the movie. And I was just like, okay, this is really strange. Because coming off of Oh Lucky Man, I was like, okay, great. Oh Lucky Man, he's in what? 95, 99% of the scenes? Maybe more? Maybe 100%? Yeah. And in this one, I'm just like, where's Mick? What's going on? And I was so confused by it. So I can see some people having a negative reaction to it. But if you just kind of like accept that this is not a Mick Travis movie that he's just a character within it. Okay, cool. And again, he's not selling coffee. He's not, he hadn't shot up his school when he was 18. <laughs> he's he's <laughs> coming over from America and is this, like you said, investigative journalist. And I think that the woman that plays the nurse that's helping him out, like his compatriot within the hospital, I want to say she might even have more screen time than he does. I think she does. I think the doctor is the one who, and I think Jonathan made this point earlier, but I'm pretty sure even though I don't really consider this movie to have a primary protagonist, I think the doctor is the one who is on screen the most, maybe? 
Yes, I think the top billing goes to Leonard Rossiter, but I think that was partly just because apart from Malcolm McDowell, I think at the time, especially in the UK, he would have been the most famous face really in this. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, his administrator, I guess, is the closest to a character that you, I guess, you can identify with where you, you, know, you feel his exasperation. But I think Crowden and Dr. Miller, I think, does get the... Yeah, I would say he is kind of the closest to a, a kind of a star in this really, <laughs> in a weird way. I wonder if that has to do, like, if the lack of Mick has to do with the budget, because I know Malcolm McDowell said that he took expenses, like he didn't charge an actual fee for appearing in this film because there wasn't enough money in the budget and... I want to say Mark Hamill did the same thing. They both just like uh, Mick, you know, loved working with Lindsay Anderson and wanted to again. And and so I think maybe if it had been a different budget or or that scenario had been different, there would have been a bigger part, but I'm not totally sure. Well, I know for a while it wasn't even Mick in the script. It was some character named Jeff. And then I think it was once they got McDowell to sign up for it, then they changed it to Mick. So this originally wasn't even written for Mick. Which is a shame that we didn't get a third full Mick movie, but this is still mind-boggling and wonderful. It's a wild, wild film. And you're right, it skewers everybody. It skewers from the beginning when a ambulance is trying to get into the hospital and there are protesters who I guess are union members uh, blocking the way and you're just like, oh, what terrible people. How how can they do this? And then it's just like, everybody's terrible. Everybody throughout this entire movie is terrible. Be it the, you know, the people that are sucking up to the queen and just making all of this to do about, you know, sur- uh, getting the hospital ready for the HRH's visit. Oh my God. And Vivian Pickles as that matron. Yes. <laughs> She's so funny. This whole thing, I mean, there are moments that smack of um, Monty Python to this. You know, we talked about how there's a uh, a woman that is played by a man, and then you have a dwarf character in here, and it's just like, okay, you know, like, how much more crazy can we go? Let's do everything. The dwarf character is also a throwback to Jean Vigo, isn't it, and to Zero de Conduit with the uh, the little headmaster. So I think that was a nice sort of uh, nod again to Jean Vigo. Which is wonderful, and it... Obviously, we talked about how Mick is this journalist, but the movie even paints the team of investigative reporters as also being kind of terrible people. Or it's like, they do want to expose what's going on, but they all seem very self-interested. And I I think it's telling that they're just completely oblivious, aren't they, to the things that are happening to Mick and that they're actually, they are themselves watching TV, aren't they? So it's decided the media is just this thing that just feeds on itself and it's not really aware of what's happening. And, uh, and then there's that moment when they, uh, the, the, the big sort of protest breaks out. And I think one of them says, you know, it's a gig. This is a gig. And I think it's that cynicism, isn't it, of just treating it like it's, you know, something to advance your career, something that, you know, you can film and that will that will be popular. And uh, yeah, I think the media too is not spared. No one is. No one is safe. No. And it just, and it just gets wilder and wilder as it goes through. It just feels like they're amping it up 
constantly. There's, again, talking about the colonialism stuff. There's a African dictator who's in one of the most posh rooms that they have in the place. There's so much to do with class in this movie, having this whole protest against the people that are getting the better meals than other people. And yeah, it just, it's wild. I couldn't get over just how different this movie was from the rest of the films in the trilogy and just how crazy this this movie was it just it keeps amping it up all the time and i do have to say i was on the edge of my seat when it came to what is graham crowden what is is professor mellar going to unveil because those scenes of him and the way that he just the dialogue is like poetry as he's describing these things and i thought for sure that it would just be one invention that he was doing but then it ends up being two things really took me by surprise and both of those wow uh (laughs) yeah this is a movie that really needs i think even more so than oh lucky man this needs to be seen to be believed because every scene is insane yeah and totally unexpected as you were saying earlier this one probably goes the most at attacking the media in different ways for sure Especially towards the end. I mean, the the way that you're talking about how the media feeds upon itself, that they are so unconcerned with, with mech, <laughs> that they're just in the van, getting high, having shrooms. All of I love how one of them, their last gig was in the West, and one of them, their last gig was in the East, and they're bringing all their drugs that they they managed to get on their journeys together. And Sharing they're just like, caring. let's get wasted. And that's Make it. Make a cocktail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was also glad to see Brian Glover in here. He always is uh, yes, yeah. Remember the Alamo. <laughs> <laughs> always, always. I have to ask, since you basically watched all three of these for the first time in what the last month, what, how did you feel? I enjoyed these. I, w- I feel like I'm much better off for having watched them. I feel like I'm much better off for knowing more Lindsay Anderson. I was expecting kitchen sink drama angry young man kind of cinema and it was so different like i i thought at first with if i was like oh we might be going down that path but man oh man did he surprise me (laughs) which if you do watch this sporting life which you definitely should because richard harris is incredible in it that is much more like traditional kitchen sink drama I think what's interesting too in that is even there, he's actually doing different things stylistically, isn't he? Like he's using flashbacks, he's using sort of like slightly expressionistic techniques. So I think even when he was making what is, yes, in many ways, it is very much the stereotypical, you know, kitchen sink narrative. Even there, he's doing something different, really. And uh, the same in the film that he made after uh, The White Bus. Oh, White Bus, which is what Anthony Hopkins, like, I feel like he had this string of brilliant actor debuts right i think that might be anthony hopkins film debut did i make that up i think it is Uh, no i think that's true yeah i think he's in it just very i'm I'm trying to remember where he appears now his character's name is brechtian i love it (laughs) that's that's right i think i think he's rehearsing on a train yeah that's right he's rehearsing it with a group of actors on a train i think and uh but that's almost like the transitional point, I think, between the kind of kitchen sink style and the kind of more fantastical style of If, because that also 
I mean, that's predominantly black and white, but again, he's he's sort of shifting between black and white and color. And, you know, you just have like these, these little flashes of surrealism. And uh, that was also the first of his films where he used um, Miroslav Andrzejczyk, the Czech cinematographer. He just got him over from Prague, as he did actually with the other two films as well, with, with If and Oh Lucky Man. He would just get him over from Prague and go through all the bureaucratic hassle of getting him from Czechoslovakia to come and shoot these films. And Like, you have to really want to work with that cinematographer to go through all that red tape. Not that I'm criticizing. Well worth it. The all like these movies are beautiful. Well, they're beautiful, and they also have that because he worked a lot with Milos Forman, and Forman, you know, had that kind of quasi-documentary feel. And there are moments in these films that have that same quasi-documentary feel. And it's that combination with that sort of, uh, I guess, attention to composition and to visual beauty as well. And I think it is the fact that Andrzej Czech could do both of those things. And one thing what, you know, Lucky Man was that struck me was that long tracking shot after this sort of the, the fires in the nuclear side where you have, uh, it's that incredibly long tracking shot where he's going uphill and then there's like explosions. That really reminded me of the shot in Diamonds of the Night, which I think Andrzej Czech was... I think he, he was like one of the, I think there were two cinematographers, but I think he was one of them. So I was wondering, was there some, you know, some sharing of knowledge basically from Diamonds of the Night to Oh Lucky Man? You know, was that a technique that he knew about that he was able to develop for this, where you have this, I think they basically built this big track and then he was sitting in a box with the camera and they were just, somebody was just, people were just pulling it uphill. So yeah, it, it was kind of like one of those connections that I saw this time. That's also the thing watching these repeatedly is there's so much happening, not only in terms of acting performances and cinematography and editing and like what's going on with the individual set pieces. I feel like they're such busy films and I I don't mean that in a negative way. There's just like so much going on that you can watch them many times and still find new things. And I I think what to me is so striking i think in the british context is that they are so cinematic because and i guess that's another connection with rivette because i guess both anderson and rivette they were very much involved in theater and so theater is a constant point of reference and yet neither of them made theatrical films i mean they're films that use theatrical devices and they're interested in theater but they're not stage bound they are cinematic and uh, to me that's quite unique i think in relation to british cinema where i think like a lot of the a lot of like the most interesting sort of British films, I think, of like the late sixties and early seventies. I mean, do basically come from a theatrical uh, context. So you know, I'm thinking of things like Marassad or The Ruling Class. And I mean, I, I love both of those films, but I mean, they they were basically innovations that were drawn from theatre. Where uh, whereas I mean, these are all sort of you know originated as as film works, and I think they are cinematic. They are poetic visually. They're not static. They're not uh, you know stagey. And, you know, I think there's not many other films in Britain or there's not many other filmmakers who who achieve that kind of style, really. I mean, I would say Ken Russell is probably the other obvious figure who's kind of comparable or maybe Nicholas Rogue. But it's interesting that I think all of these filmmakers found they felt that they were outsiders, you know. So I think that tells you something about British cinema, really. Thank you for humoring me with that connection between, <laughs> between <laughs> Anderson and Jacques Rivette. But yes, I... I totally agree. And I sometimes feel bad thinking this way or feeling this way. But 
those three are probably my favorite British directors because of that. Mm, I guess Michael Powell would be another oh, one yeah. and Peter Greenaway. But again, you know, they all felt that they were, you know, not appreciated enough at home. And uh, Well, they weren't. I, I mean, I guess to some extent that's true of many filmmakers, but I think there's something particularly about about Britain, which I think does tend to stifle, you know, it's more sort of imaginative figures. I mean, it's interesting that I think both If and Oh Lucky Man were actually like American finance, weren't they? I think it was Paramount who uh, produced If and then uh, Warner with Oh Lucky Man. So I think, I mean, I guess that wasn't that unusual at the time because I guess a lot of big British productions were American finance, but it does seem appropriate, I think, really. It does, but I think it's also something that kind of grated on him that he didn't necessarily want to be connected to Hollywood and get this Hollywood funding. And you definitely see similar things happening with Ken Russell. I mean, you know, the sort of legendary Warner Brothers control over the devils is is still a thorn in everyone's side. To go back to your question, Sam, I do have to say that I count myself very fortunate to have watched all three of these movies, but especially Oh Lucky Man. And if I were to go back to one of these, like tomorrow, Oh Lucky Man is probably the one that I would go back to. I was just so bowled over by it, and I feel like I'm a better film watcher for having seen it. That makes me very happy to hear. Me too. Yeah, I wonder how you guys would rank them because I think for me, I would say, oh, lucky man, if and then Britannia Hospital, which is really just my own preference, I think, rather than the inherent qualities, because I think they're all great. But yeah, I would I would put oh, lucky man and then if and then Britannia Hospital. Mine is the same exact order. Yeah, I would probably say the same, though I want to give Britannia Hospital yet another shot just to watch it again. I can't say that it's a bad movie by any stretch it's just a very different one and i think it might have been so different that i was kind of thrown by it so i will give it another shot someday it's very overwhelming and i agree with the point that jonathan made much earlier which is i love britannia hospital obviously i you know did a commentary on it and it's extremely long so you don't sign up to talk that long about a movie that you don't like or i mean i'm sure I know there are film critics who do, and I think they're jackasses, but I feel like If and Oh Lucky Man are perfect films, and they're two of my absolute favorite films. So me ranking Britannia Hospital third, like I, it's, it's not that I don't love it. It's just, I don't think, yeah, I, I just don't think it's a masterpiece on the same level, and I think Anderson felt the same way. It's kind of how I feel about the Python films, really, that I think that if, if you just had Meaning of Life without Holy Grail and Life of Brian, you know, I think it would, be, it would just be, you know, that amazing film from the early 80s with this crazy group of people. But I think it's the fact that, you know, you have the other two. It's always going to be the third rank one. But I mean, that doesn't mean that it's not, you know, fantastic in its own right. Totally agreed. And also agreed about those three films. You should totally play that Graham Chapman I have to admit that sometime before this movie was made, I was given a copy of the script to read in case I was interested in writing some additional material for it. I read it and thought that apart from a couple of really rather good speeches, there was very little of interest in it for me. The characters seemed dull and stereotyped, and the plot 
used as a thread on which to hang overdrawn character portraits, each character being used to represent a comment about society. The union official, the policeman, the militant extremist, the bourgeois middleman, etc. A comment expressed with the kind of heavy-handedness one would expect at a political party's Christmas pantomime. But I was wrong not to take into account the director. Lindsay Anderson has almost completely turned a piece of adolescent political fervour into an interesting and sometimes very funny parable. All the characters are self-seeking, unfortunately true to life this, and even the professor of surgery played by the brilliant Graham Crowden, who has a way of saving the world by increasing its brain power, is more than prepared to kill to achieve his aims. When you watch this tape, just listen to the speech he makes after he quietens down the rioting rabble at this hospital of life. A more subtle script with a more oblique approach, might have preached less to the converted, but I couldn't have wanted better or more exciting direction. So this movie, which disappointingly few people saw when it was released in Britain, but which is rapidly on its way to becoming a cult movie in the States, is a well worthwhile video. All right, guys, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. To a delightful weekend in the country. You are cordially invited to spend a carefree weekend in the English countryside. Bask in the warm sunshine. We've gone on holiday by mistake. Enjoy the rustic pleasure of country living. It'll be so cold in here. Like Greenland in here. Wants to get down there and have sex with those cows. Take a fine varietal wine. Oh, drunk. I'm sorry I'm not, officer. I've only had a few ales. Get in the back of the van! Take lunch at a charming pub. We want the finest wines available to humanity. We want them here, and we want them now. Fraternize with cheery locals. I don't care where you come from. Ponce! Experience culinary pleasure. I can make a die. There is, you will agree... Something je ne sais quoi about a firm young carrot. Fish in the region's streams. Don't threaten me with a dead fish. Withnil and I, a trip worth taking. What absolute twaddle. That's right, we're going to stay in Fair Britannia next week as we look at With Nail and I. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Sam and Jonathan. So, Sam, what's been going on in your world? Honestly, I am trying to think about what, like, everything I've been working on recently hasn't been announced, I think, because there's been, like, a little delay because of quarantine and because 2020 is just that exciting. We're basically living in Britannia Hospital right now. (laughs) I don't think I can talk about anything recent that I've done. Um, Yeah, I guess all I will say is I have a book coming out soon that hasn't been announced so i can't really talk about that very much um i i'm working on a book about rabid uh the cronenberg film which i've mentioned before and i also cat and i and anyone who listens to this show i'm sure now knows who she is because she is also a regular guest host she and i have our own podcast called daughters of darkness and we've started doing video episodes um and we should have one probably a new one on the incredible Spanish slasher movie pieces out by the time this episode goes live. Will you be moving your hands a little bit more? Lots of jazz hands. Excellent. Excellent. Smiling. It, it will be like in the beginning of Oh Lucky Man when she tells <laughs> when she tells the, 
the coffee salesman to smile and just like pushes his face up, it's going to be like that. <laughs> You'd be much prettier if you smiled. That's true. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> whoever, I was just thinking, whoever said that to Cat, I think maybe he was imagining that he was saying it in the voice of Rex Harrison. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he definitely was. But except we're going to all also be putting marbles in our mouths to work on our elocution. And Jonathan, how is everything in the Great White North? I've got a, a few things um, still to be uh, announced. And uh, um, I believe the uh, essay that I've contributed on Uri Hertz to the book about uh, Barandov Studios should be coming out beginning of next year, I hope. And I'm also continuing to research. Tomorrow I will wake up and scold myself with tea, but now I'm doing it in a kind of a wider context of Yinjik Polak's other films, and I'm looking at cult reception of his sci-fi films. Um, so that's going to be for a collection on global cult cinema, which I, I think maybe will appear next year at some point, maybe at the end of next year. And I also have a piece that's coming out soon on um, film of Shechled, which is the... Um, website of the National uh, Film Archive, the Czech National Film Archive, and that will be about um, Yaroslav Papushek's uh, trilogy of comedies about the Homolka family, which is very much similar to the early Milos Forman film. So, yeah, I'm hoping that will appear maybe uh, maybe at the end of this year. If memory serves, I want to say that uh, Miroslav Andrzejczyk also lends one of those uh, Homolka films. Yes, I think it was the last one. Yeah, I think so. I have had those sitting on my shelf forever. I'm so excited to uh, finally have an excuse to watch them. Not that I need an excuse. No, but life is busy. Exactly. Sure is. They might be a nice relief after Britannia Hospital because they're, they're kind of a lot more sort of uh, like low-key and sort of gentle. So, yeah, I think nice, <laughs> nice change of pace, I think. Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps a projection booth take over the world. If you have a friend on whom you think you can rely, you are a lucky man. If you found the reason to live on and not to die, you are a lucky man. Preachers and poets and scholars don't know it. Temples and statues and steeples won't show it. If you've got the secret, just try not to blow it. Stay a lucky man. A lucky man. If you found the meaning of the truth in this whole world, you are a lucky man. Neck like pearls instead of change, you are a lucky man. Takers and bakers and talkers won't tell ya. Teachers and preachers will just buy and sell ya. When no one can tempt ya with heaven or hell, you be a lucky
preachers and preachers will just buy and sell you when no one can tempt you with heaven or hell. You'll be a lucky man. You'd be better by far to be just what you are. You can be what you want if you are what you are. And that's a lucky If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.